Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Today, our episode is going to be different from the previous ones in a couple ways. First of all, we have a, a bit of an all-star lineup. So our guests today are Victoria Gross, who was the first American woman to receive the rank of Grandmaster from the International Quizzing Association wow. and is the uh, reigning Learned League Rundle Championship runner-up. We have Guy Jordan, who is one half of the duo that is the reigning pairs champion in the uh, America's Quizzing Circuit National Championship. Modesty forbids me from saying who the other half of that duo was. <laughs> <laughs> it was Steve Perry, wasn't it? I, I rode big coattails. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and uh, Susanna Brooks, who is the reigning individual champion in the America's Quizzing Circuit National Championship and the first woman to win a solo championship in that format of that magnitude. And uh, we are also joined by a, for the first time, a non-playing color commentator, Andrew Darby. Hi, everyone. Uh, so Hello. After, after each question, he will be telling you about his favorite colors. Um, <laughs> a lot on this topic, so watch out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Andrew was an early supporter of this podcast, a longtime friend of the show, and also through him being here, we now have the majority of people in this session as male, which is apparently a requirement in the quizzing community. <laughs> <laughs> Except for, the, yeah, except for my, my win where I was uh, I required them to announce as Andrew Alsberger being the top male finisher. So that was, that was very pleasing to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, the, the order was picked arbitrarily, but we'll be respecting it for the uh, remainder of the competition. So let's right now in that order, each of you say where you're Skyping from in a sentence about yourself, starting with Victoria. Oh, hi. Um, I'm Victoria. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I work as an, a scientific editorial assistant at a biomaterials journal. Hi. I'm Guy Jordan. I'm Skyping in from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I teach art history at Western Kentucky University. Impressive. And I'm Susanna Brooks. I live in Madison, Wisconsin. And oh, I keep saying Madison. It's Monona, technically. We just moved into the suburbs. So now I'm one of those. And uh, right now I'm working as an editor for the program guide for a public television station. All right. And Andrew, if you want to say a sentence about yourself. Sure. I'm Andrew Darby. I live in Hillsboro, Oregon. I am a mortgage underwriter by day and pursuing a master's of finance at night. And I know little to no trivia. So no matter how poorly you may think you're doing today, you are doing better than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this game is going to be in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. Uh, three R's also reflects the overall ethos of this show, where every week my hard drive space gets reduced, my cheap recording equipment is dusted off and reused, and this joke, of course, gets recycled. <laughs> oh, you... <laughs> <laughs> so these questions mostly are going to serve as a warm-up, but they'll be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers. For this round only, all of you will answer as individuals, so the first person the question is directed at gets the first chance to answer if they miss, the second will get a chance if both of them miss, the third will. So the further back you are in the order, the less of a direct shot you have of it, but the more time you have to think and more potential answers might get taken off the table. We'll rotate, so each of you is going to be three times in first position, three times in second, three times in third. And then I will explain the rules for the next three rounds, which are going to be a bit different after this one. And so just now the standard reminder, the content of the podcast is your thought process. So don't internalize it. Talk us and the listeners through it. All right. 
So question one, we'll start with Victoria. In the last cycle of the previous episode, we had a question about the Greta Gerwig-helmed 2019 adaptation of Little Women, Mm -hmm. which is theaters now, so we can still ask about it. Here's another question about it. It might be the only version of that property in which all four March sisters are depicted by actresses born in different countries. So in this film, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy are respectively played by Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan, Eliza Scanlon, and Florence Pugh. In which four nations were those four women born? And to make it easy, you don't have to specify which one was born in which. Just name four countries. Okay. Well, I know two are the UK and Ireland. Saoirse Ronan's definitely Irish. Emma Watson's UK. I would be very surprised if none of these were American, given that Greta Gerwig is American. Um, Florence Pugh, I'm kind of wondering if I... I know that she was in the old roid Lady Macbeth. I seem to remember reading that she was... I don't know, maybe Scandinavian. It seems like the obvious answer is Canada. Um, I'm just going to say U.S., Canada, U.K., Ireland. Right. Good guess, but not correct. Guy is next. Well, Canada is definitely a good fallback, but it's not Canada. There's so many actors and actresses that come from Canada, it seems. Gamlin and Pugh, I can't get much from those last names. Um, So we know it's not Canada. We know it's not the U.S., I don't know anything about those actresses. So I am just going to throw out a guess of France and Germany, because maybe one was born on a military base in Germany who might be an American actress. So France and Germany. So UK, Ireland, France and Germany? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm I, sure UK for Emma Watson, Ireland for Saoirse Ronan, and then Scanlon and Pugh in some France and Germany combo. All right. Again, good guesses. And both of you have been partially correct on some. But, uh, <laughs> oh, Canada. I won't reveal which ones. I'll just pass it to Susanna. Okay. Um, so just refresh my memory here. You said they were in four separate countries, not four countries, not including the U.S.? Right. I did not, I did not exclude any possibilities. Okay. Well, let's see here. I'm thinking UK and Ireland. I'm not real sure about that, but um, (laughs) all right. You know, I want to say somebody was from the Antipodian area, and I can't decide whether Australia, New Zealand, or both. Um, Part of me, like, there's this part, part of my thought process wants to say that Florence Pugh is from New Zealand for some reason. I don't know why. I have not been to see this movie, so I can't tell whether any of their so-called American accents have a little bit of a tinge of New Zealand or, you know, Kiwi or... Are you somebody uh, you can usually tell that? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes. Okay. Uh, it depends. But all I know is, you know, so-and-so should not be sounding like that. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the person that, like, when you when you watch The Wire and everybody goes, oh, The Wire is so real. And I'm like, no, it's not. None of you people, including the real Baltimore cop, sounds like you're from Baltimore. No. Um... <laughs> So uh, let's see here. Okay, Eliza Scanlon and Florence Pugh are definitely the ones we're thinking of. Let's say UK, Ireland, USA, and New Zealand, just for just for giggles. Yeah, when, when Hugo Weaving doing Agent Smith in The Matrix, he normally sounds pretty American, except when he's like, get them immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, no, my parents say immediately because they learn English in a Commonwealth country. Yes, but, and uh, Bean, Bean is, the, is the, the shibboleth there for, you know, Canada. And um, there's something that Cumberbatch does. I forget what it is, but it's a, uh, he, he, it wasn't against, but it was, it was something like that. Yeah, it, it wasn't Penguin because God knows he can't say that no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Laurie had one like that on House, too, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's always a tell. But all right. So for this question, some of you had good intuitions about the antipodes or antipodes. I'm not sure how you say that. 
Eliza Scanlon, pretty straightforwardly born and grew up in Sydney, Australia. Ah! Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Florence Pugh spent part of her childhood in Andalusia in Spain, actually, but she was actually born oh. in, in Oxford uh, in the UK. So it is not that often that, like, all three top quizzers just leap immediately to multiple wrong assumptions on the wow. same question. Uh, Saoirse Ronan, very noticeable Irish accent, but she has something in common with me. I, you know, speak with a Midwestern accent, grew up in Illinois. I was actually born, though, in Manhattan, where, uh, my, you know, my parents lived right until, basically right after I was born. Saoirse Ronan actually was born and lived until the age of three in New York City. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Emma Watson was born and lived until the age of five in Paris, France. Huh. Oh. Knew that not. <laughs> All right. Okay, so question two will start with Guy. Okay. Josiah Failing, a prominent 19th century Portland businessman and briefly the mayor of the city from uh, 1853 to 1854, was the namesake of the Failing School, which I believe lasted until the mid-20th century, <laughs> as well as the uh, still extant Failing Street and its associated Failing Street Bridge, which... I would be a little circumspect about walking over. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so if you do walk over the Failing Street Bridge, you will be crossing which interstate highway? Which interstate highway? Um, Well, so I, I'm not very good at the Pacific Northwest. It's the one part of the country that I haven't been to. We traveled to the Southwest a couple of summers ago. So we got to see Arizona and Nevada, parts of Nevada that we hadn't been to before in Southern California, outside of Los Angeles that we haven't seen before. I'm wondering if that could be like, does the I-5 go all the way up the coast into Oregon and Washington? I don't know. Or it could be 90. 90 goes across. I, I think 90 90 goes through Washington. I think 90 goes north of Oregon, so I don't think it's 90. Therefore, I'm going to hope and guess that it's a north-south highway, and I'm going to hope and guess that it is the I-5. So, uh, yeah, right here where we are in Vancouver, we're basically like half a mile away from the junction of 5 and 205, which are the two that kind of uh, go through Portland, and the one you picked, I-5, is the correct answer. Hey, Whoa. nice! Hey. Nice. All right. So now for question three, start with Susanna. And this is going to be a bit of a long question. Well, so it's going to be a question that has a long quote in it, but you just need to get the gist of it. You don't need the specific details. So this is a variant on a familiar format I've used before. I've called solve for X, nothing to do with algebra. It just I give you a quote and I remove a word and replace it with X and you have to say what that is. This is actually going to be a solve for X and Y question. So I have redacted two words from this summary of a 2007 talk given by my former mentor, Phil Tetlock, at the behest of the Long Now Foundation. I have replaced one word with an X and the other with a Y. Here's a quote. In Tetlock's interpretation, Xs have one grand theory, Marxist, libertarian, whatever, which they are happy to extend into many domains, relishing its parsimony and expressing their views with great confidence. Ys, on the other hand, are skeptical about grand theories, diffident in their forecasts and ready to adjust their ideas based on actual events. The aggregate success rate of Ys is significantly greater, Tetlock found, especially in short-term forecasts, and Xs routinely fare worse than Ys, especially in long-term forecasts. They even fare worse than normal attention pain dilettantes apparently blinded by their extensive expertise and beautiful theory. Furthermore, Ys win not only in the 
accuracy of their predictions, but also the accuracy of the likelihood they assign to their predictions. And this, they're closer to the admirable discipline of weather forecasters. The value of X's is that they occasionally get right the farthest out prediction, civil war in Yugoslavia, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, collapse of the internet bubble. But that comes at the cost of a great many wrong far out predictions. Dow 36,000, global depression, nuclear attack by developing nations. X's annoy only their political opposition, while Y's annoy across the entire political spectrum. In part, the smartest Y's cherry-pick idea fragments from the whole array of X's. Bottom line, the political expert who bores you with a cloud of howevers is probably right about what's going to happen. The charismatic expert who exudes confidence and has a great story to tell is probably wrong. So, here's the question. <laughs> Take that, Malcolm Gladwell. Sorry. <laughs> Here's the question. Which two types of animals have I replaced with X and Y? Yes. <laughs> um, which two types of animals? Yep. Um, it's kind of... <laughs> um, I, I, recall, I recall hearing something about, like, is there, isn't there some octopus that always pre- always predicts the winner of the his presidential race? His, his name is Paul, isn't it? Yes, Paul the octopus. Let's see. Grand theory, uh, Marxist libertarian... Um, you know, I believe I may have told you that one of my areas of expertise is Elizabeth Taylor's husband's, not necessarily Marxist libertarian theories. We had the Elizabeth Taylor's husband's uh, question, episode two. Yeah, let's see here. Um, what kinds of animals? Uh, let's see here. I mean, it would be it would be easy to say, you know, donkeys and, and elephants, although I don't think that's it. But um, oh, oh, um, uh, uh, hmm. can you read? I don't know if I can say one particular part of that long quote, but let's just start. I don't know. Give me give me like 10 seconds of it from somewhere that includes X's and Y's. Let's see. X's have one grand theory, which they are happy to extend into many domains. Y's, on the other hand, are skeptical about grand theories, diffident in their forecast, ready to adjust their ideas based on actual events basically a lot about how wise are more successful both at kind of prediction discrimination and at yeah hmm. i mean part of me part of me again wants to say now something like hawk and dove uh but i think that's not quite as yeah i you know i i generally i i don't i don't really listen to talks from the long now foundation i really prefer the the short later foundation but <laughs> i think that um let's see here i mean and and you could also say something like the uh you know the the more conservative ones are you know the y's are mice and the you know x's are eagles or i don't know the finite universe of animals so you know yeah let's see coelacanth and (laughs) (laughs) oh copy let's see here um i don't know i mean i could say tortoise and hare let's just go with that uh unfortunately that is the wrong answer (laughs) i knew it was wrong because i texted yogesh in the middle of your saying is this the answer and i thought it was the answer then it was wrong (laughs) sorry Are, are you telestrating all this for the viewers, Andrew. So uh, you can, <laughs> to a degree, yeah, I'm good. Well, hunting it on an easel. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that you were texting Yogesh, going, Yogesh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is the podcast? <laughs> You and Andrew both landed on a tortoise and hare, and while a logical guess, not correct. So I believe Victoria is next in order. Yes, and I'm pretty sure Guy knows this, but I also know this. Yeah. So uh, 
I think I first learned about this from Scott Alexander's blog, and I know that it was popularized by Isaiah Berlin and originally comes from the Greek poet Archilochus. And uh, it's like the fox knows one great thing, but the hedgehog knows many small things. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not one that I think anyone could ever just, you know, randomly pick two animals and guess, because unless you see it in like a political science or theory context, they're not two animals that you see put together. I will also say on an unrelated note that whenever my daughter comes into any money, she usually like a child of her generation wants it converted into Amazon script. So <laughs> she, you know, gives my, gives my husband the money and he will get her her Amazon credit and he always sends it to her with a Marxist quote. <laughs> so uh you know she as does, one does as, as one does as one does so like for for christmas this year her gift to him is she's very into calligraphy and lettering so she did this beautifully lettered malcolm x quote show me a capitalist and i'll show you a bloodsucker <laughs> how old is your daughter she's 15 oh nice yeah. <laughs> wise beyond her years oh. <laughs> Or My the, dad likes to her. say thank you for uh, letting me watch the TV for as long as you can by uh, watching me do this obstacle course. So that's about it. <laughs> yeah, the outside so. said communism for Christmas. So uh, she knows her dad very well. Wow. All right. So in question one, I was a little loose, not requiring specifying. I think for this one, since there's only two parts, I'm going to ask you to specify which one is X and which one is Y. Okay. Oh, oh I could do this part, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, so I'm I'm just making sure that I have the quote right in my head. I think I had it switched. I think that the hedgehog is the one who is... See, wise are the ones who are more flexible and generally more successful? Yes. Wise are foxes. So you're, you're locking in hedgehog for X and hedgehog fox for X. Hedgehog for X, fox for Y. All right, so uh, Guy, is that right? Um, the more flexible and malleable should be the foxes. And the more I know one thing... Because yeah. hedgehogs dig their little heads mm-hmm. into the hedges, right? That's how <laughs> I, I always remember this. And so hedgehogs are really good at the one, you know, they ha- yeah. they know a lot of detail about one thing. So assuming that Y is the more broad of the two categories, Y should be foxes and X should be hedgehogs. I think right. if we're hearing that right. Yeah. So when Victoria said it the first time, she had them switched. I did have them gave- switched. But then when right. I specified it, I locked in the correct... Yes. And you gave the right background, originating with a fragment from Archilochus, popularized by an essay Isaiah Berlin wrote about Tolstoy, the distinction is between hedgehogs and foxes. That's on. So question four now will begin with Victoria. All right, here's your question. In addition to being a movie star and filmmaker, Clint Eastwood has had a long parallel career as a musician and composer with a surprisingly sharp ear. So for his directorial debut, 1971 play Misty for Me, he plucked from obscurity a love song written by you and McCall and recorded by a then unknown artist and incorporated it into the soundtrack. As a result, that song was issued as a single, hit number one on the U.S. charts, and won its artist the first of two consecutive Record of the Year Grammy Awards. Who was that artist? Here's me going, ooh, ooh, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like I I have to keep up my, my, uh, you know, my rep because I just went all over the place for the other one. So let's see. So it was the first of two consecutive Record of the Year awards for its artist. 1971, you said? That was the year the movie came out. It would have been 1972 would almost, would very likely have been the Grammy and possibly the year that this came out. Um, I know my number one singles and 
I should know who won two consecutive Record of the Year awards. And you said that the artist who performed it is a singer-songwriter, or you did no. not say that? Okay. I... So what were big hits in 1970-71? Um, I really have absolutely no idea here. I'm going to pass. All right, guy. Well, so this is something you and McCall song Clint Eastwood playing it in Play Misty for Me. So it's obviously not Hokey Carmichael because that is Misty. So we're looking at like something that's not long after 1971. Um, I don't know music super well, but I think Carol King's Tapestry won album of the year in 74. No, but wait, she wrote all her songs with Jerry Goffins. I don't know that she's going to... That doesn't mean that she wrote everything with Jerry Goffin. Like, that would that would have been, like, close to peak Stevie Wonder. Uh, but a Stevie Wonder wrote most of his own songs. I think Susanna is going to... Is waiting for this rebound. I'm, I'm just going to get... I'm just going to say Carol King, because it's about the right time period. And that's going to... That'll be my locked answers. Carol King. Yeah, that, that is about the right time period. And, uh, yeah, Stevie Wonder, I think, won three album of the year Grammy in the yeah. 70s of course he was famous well before then i think as a teenager he had his first number one hit so yeah that's a, a good guess uh not correct and i'll pass it over to Susanna. well let me just first give uh i'll give the ex- the answer and then can i expound upon that if in fact i was correct of course Alrighty. um my answer is roberta flax all right Did, do you want to say more about that well are you going to confirm whether or not <laughs> <laughs> So let me like go on yeah. and be like, oh yes, I just you know, Roberta <laughs> Flack was such and such, and oh, it was just the most wonderful thing in the world. And you're like, yeah, great, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine, I'll, I'll be nice. I will confirm that yes. Uh, now each of you has one tenth of a point on the board because Roberta Flack is correct. Huzzah! Uh, <laughs> I know this because it's it's uh it's such a beautiful song. It's the song that you're thinking about is the first time ever I saw your face. And the song that she got the next year would, I assume, be Killing Me Softly with his song. When you're thinking about Ewan McCall, I believe he wrote the song in like the mid-50s because he wrote it for Peggy Seeger. Oh, wow. And I think I think they were either married or together at the time. I, I stopped myself from they were, saying They were married to other people at the time. Yes, actually. that's what I was going to say. They were doing it, probably. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I can't, I mean, there's, I could, you know, go off into a whole thing about the family tree of the the Seegers and, you know, Charles Seeger and, and Ruth Crawford Seeger, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so um, I want to say that you McCall wrote that in the 50s for Peggy Seeger. That is my understanding as well. Yes. Wow. All right. So Thank you for uh, saying, wow, it makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> that was impressive. You, you had it at the ready and then you just dug that knife in deeper. <laughs> I know it never, uh, it probably never happened, but I'm just imagining Clint Eastwood playing Killing Me Softly on a piano. Strumming my pain with his fingers. Singing my life with his words. You should just be glad that I don't have my my camera on. I was actually trying to figure out how I could turn on my camera, but when Victoria is talking about, I can't even, what is it, Archobolus or whatever? Archilocus. Archilocus, and I'm just like, mother pus bucket. Well, and then it comes to like a number one single. I was like, oh, I don't know. Well, you were you were also saying, oh, I know my number one singles, and I was like, like I do, but I'm not like, I don't think there's any I wouldn't recognize. Let's put it that way. But I mean, like I could sing that whole song, but I have no idea what movie it came from. Yeah, I, you know, that was just sort of a that was a nugget for me. That wasn't a oh yes, I know the I've quizzed myself on all the things. So, and it, this is very interesting. We have certainly discussed the difference between myself and Victoria and how we study for things. And the answer to most of it is Victoria studies and I don't. 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I I feel like, you know, the, the Wikipedia deep dive does it for me because I'm just associative, you know, like I need something sort of active to, you know, it's not just I'm looking at something and trying to, even if I'm using an algorithm or something, it's, it's not really going to stick unless I think like, oh yeah, I remember I was looking at this and, and this and this and this. So I couldn't tell you what rabbit hole I went down for that, but that was a, I'm glad I knew it. The end. Perhaps my next podcast will be Victoria Singh's number one hits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next question starts with Guy. So this is an analogy question, just like the SAT analogies. The blacklist star Megan Boone is to the villages in Florida as etiquette maven Emily Post is to Tuxedo Park, New York, as the Oscar-nominated actor Edward Norton is to where? Wow. Okay. Hold on here. So Edward Norton is to where? Um, so Emily Post is an etiquette writer. And so what? what is Emily Post to again? So something Park, New York? Tuxedo Park, New York. Tuxedo Park, New York. Huh. Well, the vi- the villages. So M- Megan Boone, I believe you that she's an actress from The Blacklist. I don't know anything about her. The villages is. I was just talking about this with my family over the the holidays. I actually have a friend who is working on a newspaper there. That's like this gigantic retirement community from hell. Apologies to anyone from the villages listening to this podcast in Florida, <laughs> where everyone drives around in golf carts and there are all these gated communities. So. That's what The Villages is. I don't know anything about Tuxedo Park, New York. Emily Post is an etiquette writer. Edward Norton is an actor. I believe he was in Fight Club. I saw that a long time ago. So what would Megan Boone be doing in The Villages? What would Emily Post be doing in Tuxedo Park, New York? Um, And these are these are not big cities. So, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if the third option is going to be some weird small town or unique location i have nothing to go on here i'm hoping my maybe i'm not hoping I, I'm, I'm hoping my my compatriots are are, are doing better than i am at, at this i'm just gonna go with pick a random town i don't know v- vale colorado and right. and hope that that is a place that could conceivably be correct does that come from your extensive knowledge of elite ski destinations well guy? well no no I, I, you know what i could say you know what i could say wilmington delaware because I, I was... think because I think that I think that Fight Club, like the very last scene of Fight Club, when all the buildings fall down. So, spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Fight Club, <laughs> don't listen to this. Um, I think Fight Club's supposed to take place in Wilmington, Delaware. Let me just say Wilmington, Delaware, because right. that could be conceivably related to Edward Norton. So that's how you you give the ending of the movie and then add spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. Thanks, guy. <laughs> but um, okay, yeah. No, I see the logic behind that guess, uh, Susanna. Uh, Wilmington, Delaware, also known as birthplace of one Susanna Brooke. Uh, and if you're thinking about other trivia people, you will know that the, the esteemed Southville family uh, is also from northern Delaware, which is not too far from southern Delaware because it's so small. <laughs> <laughs> it's very though. Surprisingly culturally different. Yeah, definitely. Anytime anybody says anything about Delaware, I just, I pop my head up like a meerkat and I'm like, what, what, what? 
<laughs> the Daily Show actually did a segment about the cultural differences between Northern Delaware and Southern Delaware. They're surprisingly oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they they have three counties, and I don't even know what they do in the middle counties aside from I think there's some farming and there's some you know there's Dover, which isn't much, and I believe actually that I want to say that Harrington, Delaware, was the setting for Pollyanna, but I could be wrong. But um, yeah, uh, so all this talk is about Delaware, and uh, I don't think Delaware's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, the issue for me here is I don't know much about Edward Norton. So me talking this out is going to give Victoria a bunch of help probably, but God knows <laughs> maybe she won't know it either. When you talk about the villages and then you talk about Tuxedo Park, the one thing I know about Tuxedo Park is it's sort of a, I mean, as as the name states, it's it's kind of a fancy place. It's a society place. And that's where the, the name Tuxedo came from because it was, it was a, a dinner jacket that you wore in Tuxedo Park when you're doing fancy things. So, and I thought, okay, what, what can you do in a place like the villages? What can you do in a place like Tuxedo Park? Um, part of me is thinking, you know, this is where they got married or something like that. I mean, you, it's possible that they could have been born there, but um, you know, possibly got married. I don't know. So Edward Norton, let's just take a wild guess and say New York, New York. I'm trying to think of how, I mean, uh, if you don't know what Megan Boone is like, she is a little bit young to be getting married to someone in the villages. Yeah, I'm picturing that. It's because awesome. you care about your grandparents, Yogesh. Come on. Uh, then again, this, this is Hollywood. Just, so it's hardly it was just really good rental fee, you know? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, both of you have filled in a little bit of uh, information about the choices, which I think might help, Victoria. So the thing is, like, it's great when people throw in, like, additional information they know. So I personally, if you're looking to impress someone with information you know, I'm kind of a terrible audience for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) But Andrew, on the other hand, is a very good audience for being impressed by things. So, uh, yeah, it is. uh, is, And I can tell you, he is very impressed by all of the knowledge that you're sharing for all of you. I can't remember what it would take to impress you. Like, you know, things (laughs) that I know, but Yogesh doesn't. And that Yogesh actually cares about, you know, like, (laughs) sort of. You know, it would it would be interesting. All right. So Guy filled in some information on the villages. Susanna filled in some on Tuxedo Park. Victoria, can you do anything with that? So when I was trying to dissect this, the big question that I had in my head was, why would we be like, there's got to be something relevant, right? You're not going to just ask us, well, where did Edward Norton most recently buy a sandwich? That's not interesting. <laughs> um, you <laughs> maybe, but... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I have to say that I, I find Edward Norton, uh, I had a major crush on him when I was a, uh, a young lass. So yeah, I would find that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not really for trivia purposes. So what I'm getting at is there needs to be something here that we would be expected to know about Edward Norton in some way. Um... I know nothing about Megan Boone. I was familiar with the villages. I mean, my only link between Emily Post and a tuxedo would be, you know, etiquette and and yeah, the whole socialite thing. There's only two things that I can associate with Edward Norton and the rest of the analogy doesn't really help me in terms of locations. And the first is New Haven. I know he went to the Yale School of Drama. Um, I believe that he lived in New Haven before that, but I'm not entirely certain. I also know that he recently directed his first movie and that it was an adaptation of Jonathan Lethem's uh, Motherless Brooklyn. So I've been trying to decide between New Haven and Brooklyn. And since Susanna said New York, my inclination is that if the answer were Brooklyn, Yoga should have asked her to be more specific. 
Yeah. So I'm going <laughs> to say New Haven because it is the only location that I associate with Edward Norton that would make any sense. So New Haven, Connecticut. So uh, again, yeah, this does involve going kind of into into biography. So biographical information would be helpful. So Megan Boone, we'll start with the fact that Megan Boone grew up. I'm not sure where she was born, but she did in fact grow up in the villages. Wow. Now Whoa. you can right now you can see why this is intriguing because as Guy pointed out the villages is a retirement community. Megan Boone is definitely not retired. She's fairly young, and when she was growing up, she was even younger. Believe it or not. No uh, way. <laughs> hey, can we pause the podcast? <laughs> So the reason that she grew up in Nertan Village is that it was, in fact, founded by a developer who was her great-grandfather. Now, oh uh, Tuxedo Park was uh, or, uh, founded by uh, Pierre Laurelard, the, uh, the Laurelard Cigarettes uh, Company, but it was designed by the architect Bruce Price. And so Emily Post also spent part of her childhood there as she was the daughter of Bruce Price. And Edward Norton, as it turns out, is the grandson of James Rouse. And oh urban... my gosh. Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. So as an urban planner, James Rouse uh, was involved in most famously a specific planned community, not that far from the Philadelphia or yeah. Wilmington area. One that was the also the, um, I think, birthplace, at least where the, the home of the writer Michael Chabon, the cartoonist Aaron Magruder, and home to a famous concert venue called Meriwether Post Pavilion. Yeah. Uh, just in case you thought you'd get through this podcast without any Marjorie Meriwether Post references, you won't. <laughs> you, you, you've lost the Marjorie Meriwether Post challenge. You must uh, have loved the, the episode of uh, Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> I was like, oh. I, I've heard about that Paul Paquette mentioned that to me, but I haven't caught up with this season yet. But uh, in any event, the name of that community still around today, fairly well populated. It's called Columbia, Maryland. Ah, home wow. of uh, Megan Rafferty Barnes. Ah, yes. A surprising number of quizzing people from that general, like, D.C., Baltimore, megalopolis area. Okay, so next one, we'll start with Susanna. In 1781, during the waning days of the Revolutionary War, Speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates Benjamin Harrison V stepped down in order to assume that state's governorship, who, appropriately enough, replaced him as Speaker of the House of Delegates. All right, say that again. That was the Revolutionary War? Yeah, so 1781, so around the time that the Revolutionary War was winding down, the U.S. was kind of winning. The governorship of Virginia was assumed by Benjamin Harrison V, who had been the Speaker of the House of Delegates, who replaced him when he stepped down as Speaker of the House of Delegates, appropriately enough. This could go a couple different ways. You could go for the the irony factor with, you know, the Harrison family. And you could also go with famous Virginia orator. And I want to say Patrick Henry because, you know, he was an orator in the Virginia legislature, I believe. But Jennifer Morrow is probably listening to this going, oh, God, what are you? Oh. Also, uh, let's just give a shout out to Jennifer Morrow. We'll, we'll pour out some Labats here for, for Neil Peart and just thinking of her. But yeah, I, I, I wanted to say Patrick Henry. All right. So you're locking in Patrick Henry? Yeah. So interesting. I believe Patrick Henry actually did succeed Benjamin Harrison V as governor, but that was not the question. So uh, that is not the correct answer. Well, you could edit it to make it the question. I mean, I'm just saying. Why wouldn't it work? Susanna, I'm really glad you went first because I, I wrote down Patrick Henry on my paper. I was I was actually pretty sure you were correct with that. You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> um, geez. Okay. So 
1781, Virginian. Um, I think this is not going to be Washington. I could very well see this being, um... One of the Lee brothers. My best friend's favorite movie is 1776. <laughs> um, but I know that I think it's Harry Lee. Am I right about that? Did one of the speeches kind of invoking the need for secession? If it's not that, colonial figures from Virginia specifically. So James Madison. Uh, I don't think it's Monroe. I think he was too young. Um, let's go with Lee. All right, uh, good guess again. I'll pass over to Guy. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first heard that, I thought it might be kind of like the Tippecanoe in Tyler too, even though it was William Henry and not Benjamin. That's um, what I was thinking too. But yeah. there, there's a there's another connection that I was thinking about, and I'm I'm happy. I don't know that I'm right, but I'm happy Victoria didn't go with it. Harrisonburg, Virginia, is home to James Madison University. Oh. And I'm wondering if maybe Yogesh is trying to sneak in some kind of geographical connection here. So because James Madison is in Harrisonburg, even though, and and I don't know which Harrison Harrisonburg is named for. It could be, could very well be that particular Harrison. So I am going to say Madison as my lock. All right. So, so, um, Andrew's guess, by the way, he showed me here, was uh, succeeding Benjamin Harrison V. He guessed Benjamin Harrison VI. Uh, <laughs> and was I right? Which is very logical and uh, and straightforward. And although not the correct answer, he was the only one of you to think along the right family lines. Actually, Guy was basically on the right track with his initial comment. So you fast forward 60 years from 1781 to 1841. The president of the United States, William Henry Harrison, dies and is replaced by his vice president. President John Tyler. And this is appropriate as 60 years earlier, his father, Benjamin wow. okay, was replaced as Speaker of the House of Delegates by John Tyler Sr. Oh, uh-huh. that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. And now one last cycle of these before getting to all of your specialist categories. So starting on Victoria. As a performer, Elvis Presley Sound Like Carrie Stafford was a one-hit wonder, peaking at number 30 on the U.S. charts with the Elvis cover of Suspicion, which famously occupied the number six spot in a week in 1964 when the top five were all held by the Beatles. There's a little bit of chart trivia not relevant to the question. So Terry Stafford, his biggest success as a songwriter as opposed to performer came with what 1973 country and western ballad, which a decade later was turned into a classic by George Strait? In 2019, the so-called Mongolian cowboy, Ank Erdane, came all the way from the yellow sands of the Gobi Desert to perform a note-perfect rendition of it on the CBS talent show The World's Best, despite not speaking a word of English. Country and Western Ballad. And you said 1983 George Strait cover? Yes. Do I know any George Strait songs? Um... I know a few kind of more recent ones. Not many, though. This is 70s, 80s country is definitely not my strength. Um, So let's try to think of country western ballads that are maybe showy enough that somebody might want to cover them in a talent show. Um, Let's do Help Me Make It Through the Night. Just trying to think of something written around that era that has been covered a lot. Locking that in? Yeah. All right. Guy? Yeah, this is way out of my my zone of, of expertise here. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there's a list I made a while ago of 10 or 20 country songs. And like, I know there's one of them on that list by George Strait. It could be that song. I'm trying to recall it and I'm not having a lot of luck. So we've got a 1964 Terry Stafford, I guess, and 
1973 and 1983 and 2019 remake um sung by a, a mongolian singer on a on a global singing show um the only thing i can do here is just hope that there is some remarkably interesting piece of information that we don't know about this song and that might maybe it's something really maybe it's something like jolene maybe there's a really weird way that dolly parton came into the song jolene like she may have written it i could be completely wrong but because it is a ballad and it's a country song i can't imagine george Strait singing jolene but i'm, I'm still gonna say i have nothing else um I, I can't imagine you know clint eastwood singing a roberta flack song either so hey you know um, i'm gonna say jolene yeah people people look at clint eastwood's filmography they forget right in the middle of all of the action movies he directed a biopic of charlie parker Mm. Uh, yeah, he's, he contains multitudes. But um, yeah, Jolene, very much a song that's pretty locked into a woman's point of view. Doesn't really work uh, gender split. Although I think Jack White actually did do a cover of it. Yeah, the but, White Stripes did. Yeah. He's in Nashville now, too. Yeah. But yeah, so that, uh, and I think that was Dolly Parton. I think in like the same burst of creativity when she wrote, I will always love you. Yeah, um, all you got to do is listen to that podcast. I mean, I was, that was one of my favorite little nuggets before that podcast came out, but now everybody knows it. So I'm just like, okay, but yeah, everybody should listen to uh, Dolly Parton's America, particularly because of the way that Jad Abu, Abu Murad, I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing his name right. Cause oh, I'm, so gonna, yeah. This is, um, this is Radio Lab then. Okay. Yeah. Radio yeah. Lab. Um, he, it's not just, oh yeah, he was interested in Dolly Parton it was he's interested in Dolly Parton who happens to be a close friend of his father who is what like I think he's Iranian uh originally and happened to be her doctor and uh oh, wow. you know so it was this very sort of cool circumstance that um she's like oh yeah come on over to my house and we'll just talk so um I'm trying to think here my knowledge of country songs and the world's best that was a wasn't that an America's Got Talent world's best thing? Um, so America's Got Talent's an NBC franchise. Oh, so. that's right. That's right. It was like X Factor kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, we used to watch that, but it wasn't necessarily because of the performers. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, so 1973 song by this guy, and then 1983 song by George Strait, and then 2019 song by Mongolian guy, and it's a ballad. I mean, I'm not a musicologist, but it sounds pretty ballad-like to me. Uh, sadly, I am a musicologist. <laughs> <laughs> so don't take that super literally. Yeah. Uh, what else did you say? You said something, something, something. Was it Terry, Terry Stafford, Terry Jacks? What? Terry Stafford wrote, basically he, he wrote the song, probably his biggest success as a songwriter, though not as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of picking things out of midair and if I had longer time to, you know, tease out that thread, maybe I could think of it. Uh, country ballads, country ballads, country ballads, country ballads. Oh, I just do not know. My mother would know, but like the guy, uh, Bill Malone, who was the only historian that they had in the country music series with Ken Burns is actually a family friend of ours. Um, so, and I actually haven't watched the whole thing yet, despite working for PBS and knowing Bill Malone. So I failed on multiple fronts here. Um, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything, even just a, a best wrong answer here, but I can't. Um, so let's see. Uh, I have a thing in my head now, but I'm I'm not going to get it. So um, Because I'm trying to beam Thong Song into your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, you wouldn't you wouldn't actually need to distract me that much because what you don't know is that I, I managed to turn off the the microphone here because a small child just wandered in with a veggie straw saying, "Mom, watch me blow through this veggie straw." <laughs> and then she left the door open, and I, I turned it off, going, "Josephine." Um, and uh yeah so uh hmm, i don't know calling occupants of interplanetary crafts i have a file on my computer of things that i plan to to write blog entries about that i haven't like fully researched yet and i was looking at the other day and i had in it the phrase calling planet uh, what you just said calling interplanetary craft or whatever yeah so clearly at some point i wrote that down to go back to and look up what it is but i haven't done that yet so it was (laughs) it was originally by the band clot and uh, famously covered by the Carpenters. And apparently when Klaatu's album dropped, there were people who were convinced that it was the Beatles recording under another name. <laughs> right. That, yeah, but since you said Klaatu, it did come back. And I, yeah. that was the nugget that I had. Uh, I had think Canadian, from. but I'm not sure. But yeah. All right. Well, Klaatu Barada Nikto, which yes. is a yes. Army of Darkness. Niktar. Yeah. Andrew thinks that that's a reference to Army of Darkness. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Okay. All right. So you know, so this is again kind of a, a bit of a training for the future questions to to kind of look for hints hidden in plain sight in the wording. I tried. I was very afraid that um, if I tried to work the word yellow in, it would be very politically incorrect. But it turns the out yellow that, rose of Texas. It turns out that in fact the uh, a phenomenon in the Gobi Desert called. It's now Wikipedia officially calls it. Asian dust, which I guess is a more politically correct term, but it is also commonly known as yellow sand or yellow dust. So I was able, that is a geographically accurate reference to the yellow sands of the Gobi Desert. It's not just me being racist. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> right. Yellow is, of course, if you translate it into Spanish, you get the word amarillo, which uh, is, oh, as trans, uh, you know, pronounced by gringos, comes out amarillo. And the name of this song is Amarillo by Morning. Yep, I've heard of that. I, I'm I acknowledge not that sure I have. You <laughs> <laughs> should look up the clip of the Mongolian cowboy, though. Although he was, they tried to Susan Boyle him, but he was kind of a known quantity because on Mongolia's Got Talent, he'd already done a, a perfect Elvis impersonation. So I see wow. by your outfit that you are a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now the uh, last one of these, but we'll start with Guy. What's the name of the NFL cheerleading squad associated with the sports franchise owned by the family of former head coach, Paul Brown and housed in Paul Brown Stadium. And just in case, this is an unrelated hint, but just in case it, it jogs anything, this squad selection of 40-year-old Laura Vic Manis in 2009 made some headlines because she was the oldest cheerleader in NFL history. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that this isn't going to be the Browns because that would be <laughs> too obvious. I believe that the Bengals have a connection to Paul Brown too. Um, so I am going to go under the assumption that this is the Cincinnati Bengals. So what would the cheerleading squad be called for the Cincinnati Bengals? Could it be something like the Tigresses? Could it be something, you know, um, Siberian Tigers, Bengal Tigers, the Stripes, the, the, hmm, could, could it be like a pun on something else related to cats? Could be a lot of good things. Um, I think at this point, I just have to be satisfied that I, I hope that it's the Cincinnati Bengals, and I am going to go with the Tigresses as my answer. Tigresses, good guess. Let's do Susanna next. Uh, let me think. Yeah, I want to say it probably is the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, 
yeah, I was thinking it was the Kansas City Chiefs maybe, but then I thought Arrowhead Stadium and it's not the Colts. It's not the, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be something so so simple as the kittens because they, uh, you want to say like the tiger kittens or something, but I don't know. Tiger, tigerettes, the bengalettes, the, I don't know. I want to say tiger bells, but that's the Tennessee State University women's track team. So, uh, hmm. Let's be creative here and say the Bengalers. The Bengalers? Yeah. All right. And if I it's like not it. the Bengalers, it really should be. <laughs> All right. Uh, Victoria? Uh, so Guy and Suzanne are right that it is the Bengals. Um, and I don't know a whole bunch of NFL cheerleading squad names, but the ones I do know are, are kind of, they tend to be a little kind of punny and cheesy, like Philadelphia's the Liberty Bells and um, the Jets are the flight crew. So I, I came up with a couple of, punny possibilities one was the ben gals and and but the one that i think i'm going with because you specifically mentioned a 40 year old cheerleader in the question i'm going with the cougars (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that, yeah that uh those are kind of unrelated bits of of information the 40 year old and the that but um that's an interesting thought process so you all blew past kind of the first trap hidden in the question obviously so paul brown enormously popular the first head coach of the Cleveland Browns and the franchise was in fact actually named for him. For a while there was some controversy over that, but they're now all acknowledging that he was the namesake. And during his first years, it was very successful. It grew less successful in the 60s and he clashed with Art Modell, who was the owner and whose family now owns the Baltimore Ravens because somehow he was able to change the Cleveland Browns into the Baltimore Ravens to complications a bit too next level for this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, Is there so- anything really too next level for trivia nerds? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's an interesting story. Listeners can track down on their own. The, the... <laughs> so he fired Paul Brown. Paul Brown stewed for a while, but then when the AFL began, he created his own franchise, the Cincinnati Bengals. The AFL was then absorbed into the NFL, and so now the Brown family owns the Cincinnati Bengals, and they play in Paul Brown Stadium. So the next level is what is their cheerleading squad called? So as a lover of wordplay, it pains me that nowadays the vast majority of NFL cheerleading squads are just called the franchise name cheerleaders. We no longer have the Houston Derek Dolls, the Philadelphia <laughs> Bells, the New Orleans Louisians, uh, <laughs> Buffalo Jills, and of course the Minnesota Five Queens. Oh, God. <laughs> That's the name of the football team, if you can call that a football team. But I'm required by law to say that. Right. But there are a few that keep that tradition of puns alive. We, we do. So New Orleans does have the Saint Stations. Uh, the Jets, I think, still have the flight crew. Cincinnati, I think one of the more creative names out there. It's the Ben Gals. Yeah. Oh, darn it. This close. Yeah. Wow. Uh, happened multiple times already. Someone has said a right answer and then moved away from it. It is, in fact, the Ben Gals. Well done. Anyway, that was good. <laughs> good job, Victoria. I, 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 feel, uh, I feel a sense of moral victory. Well, <laughs> really, you guys are all, you're, how much closer I mean, you're you're each in neighboring states to Ohio, so um, you know. I mean, they, you the the Bengals bit... are considered a well, I would say considered a, a rival, but not really. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I I'm in feel... the uh, I'm in the Titans area of Kentucky, so maybe they're AFL or AFC. We don't we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. When uh, they they first entered the NFL, the Bengals and Browns were rivals for very personal reasons, but that's kind of been forgotten now. All right. So now, Susanna, we'll start the last question in this round. A 1985 American Heritage article titled The Magazine That Taught Faulkner, Fitzgerald, and Millet How to Write is about St. Nicholas Magazine, the pioneering children's literary magazine and journal that entertained and inspired generations of juveniles from 1873 to 1940. So here's the question. What woman, otherwise best known for a novel published in 1865 and somewhat loosely adapted into a classic 1998 Disney Channel original movie was the founding editor of St. Nicholas. Um, 1998 Disney Channel movie. I like how uh, that's the she went in yeah. on. Hmm. 1865 novel. Well, it's not going to be Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let's see. 1865 novel by a woman, St. Nicholas. I don't think it was Alcott. Who else was writing? I want to say St. Nicholas was a New York magazine, but, um, well, we all know that Mary Rogers was the daughter of Richard Rogers, so it can't be Freaky Friday, even though Lindsay Lohan is. Let's see. What kind of book would they have adapted into a movie? I should know this because it was interesting. We were having this discussion the other day in one of our communities about things men don't know that like trivia questions men don't know that that women are like, uh, yeah. And I think this would totally be one of them. But unfortunately, I can't come up with it. I'm happy to satisfy the other side of the equation for you if it gets to me. So it's uh, it makes you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right here's my question guy if you you'll permit me to jump out of this yeah uh, you know, guys, here's my question wow okay <laughs> i am your podcast host now um <laughs> <laughs> no this is a quick enough question i hope you'll you'll indulge me here guy do you know who helen keller's teacher was oh i've heard this before i've heard this before it's um oh my gosh it, it, it's the movie um sullivan and sullivan yeah yeah I mean, you're a trivia guy, yeah, but my, uh, I think we were talking about it on Muffy's page, and that was, I was like, okay. Um, did she write in 1865? No, I don't know, probably not. Um, no, um, hmm. she did, but she was real old. <sighs> not Edith Wharton, it's not. Yeah, I just keep thinking some something like, something like Alcott, and who was like Alcott, and, um, when you get to the end of this, you're gonna be like, yeah, it's Alcott, and I'm gonna be like, man, um, <laughs> uh, Shoot. Um, I don't know. Let's just say Alcott. And I know it's not Little Women, but um, maybe they did, you know, Eight Cousins or The Ant Hill. So. All right. So, yeah, we, we began this round with an Alcott question. We are not ending it on an Alcott question. Oh, okay. Hmm. Oh, sorry, wait. It's Victoria. Not yeah. Victoria. So I believe I know the novel because if, if I'm thinking of yep. the correct novel, I read it to my daughter on a train going to D.C. when she was maybe six years old. I'm sure everybody else in the train was thrilled. Uh, <laughs> I'm clapping. <laughs> um... However, I am not 100% certain I know the name of the author, so I am not going to say at this point what I think the book is. I'm just going to say the name. Is it Esther Averill? A-V-E-R-I-L-L? Uh, that name does not ring a bell for me. Okay. So Yeah, I, I kind of thought I was mixing this up, but that's, that's what I'm going with because I cannot remember for the life of me who wrote this book. I'm kind of thinking that if you're thinking this and you're thinking it's the kind of book that you know the you know the title but you're you're not real sure about the author, I kind of have an idea of what the book is because I was thinking that too. You might, yeah, it would not surprise me. Um, it's is actually pretty charming. Holds up a lot. We found reading like kind of classic children's books, some of them really do not hold up. Um, <laughs> you're kidding me. Yeah, um, yeah, a Doctor Doolittle, not so much. Um, <laughs> I love the Doctor Who books when I was a kid, but yeah, I have not revisited them. Uh, they they are pretty, or at least the original, pretty incredibly racist. Really, I can. Oh see yeah. That. 
Oh yeah. I did did read it recently, like fairly recently. We were reading them out loud, but not to my child. We read some books out loud to each other in the early parts of our marriage when we were not actually trying to deal with a a small squirrel. (laughs) Um, It'll be interesting though. The new, the new Dr. Doolittle movie will be much more like the, I get that the Eddie Murphy movie was, you know, set in the present time and everything, but really the only thing that was like it was there is a guy and he communicates with the animals. And and that part's fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, yeah, yeah that, that was the name I was going with. And I, and I think that Esther Averill is much more recent, but that was the only name that I could associate with the book I'm thinking of. So anyhow. All right, let's uh, throw it over to Guy then. I'm trying to come up with, you know, novels written by women that are about that time that aren't obvious things that we can pretty much rule out, like Alcott. There's a book called Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson that is sort of about the plight of this Native American woman. And I don't know if it's in 1865, but I feel like it's around mid-19th century, and it's the sort of book that I could see potentially making an interesting Disney movie. You know, it's not something I'm sure about, but I don't have much else to go on. You know, I'm trying to remember whether or not Helen Hunt Jackson edited any magazines. And I'm a little bit like, I'm a little bit curious why Yogesh would drop the St. Nicholas magazine editing reference, because that's kind of a, it it could just be a random biographical fact. Is there something about St. Nicholas or Santa Claus that might have, you know, like, I I, I don't know, um, that, that might be a clue that I'm missing. I can't really figure out what that might be. So it if it is a clue, it, it's not one that I'm able to really to really dig into because I'm trying to think of what female author dealt with something related to Christmas or Santa Claus or St. Nicholas in the mid-19th century. So Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson's really all I've got. So I'm going to go with Helen Hunt Jackson. St. Nicholas, yeah, basically just the name of the magazine. It hasn't been released yet, but the previous episode, uh, we kind of ended on a discussion of Cricket Magazine, which... Well, I was thinking about that too, yeah. The Little which, New Yorker. Right. It, yeah. it was it's The New Yorker for Children, but it was kind of intended as a St. Nicholas for a new generation. Yeah, it's, it's still around or was when my daughter was closer to that age. Well, and in fact, it's run out of, or at least it was run out of LaSalle, Peru, Illinois, which is very close to where my mother grew up and where my parents now live. And so my dad does a lot of work with them. And my mom has a friend from high school who actually was one of their editors. And so we got to visit there when I was a kid. And that was like one of the only cool things that we ever got to do instead of going to, you know, the the carved wooden plier factory and button collection. So... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the Midwest for you. Um, no, no, it's just my mom. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, uh, everything, man. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Victoria was trying not to cackle. Sarah Brooks. <laughs> All right. So uh, okay. Where was I in the? Oh yes. Okay. So you you locked in Jackson. Yeah. When you said Ramona, for a second I thought you might go in the Beverly Cleary direction. And I was like, she's very she lives very here. Very old. Hundred and two, yeah. but not two hundred and two. Yeah. Yeah. Still alive. I th- we could probably go visit her because uh, she's in the Portland area. But Sweet. yeah. The entire <laughs> female. Uh, the entire female listening audience just went oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Disney Channel original movie I haven't actually seen, but I, I hear about it a lot. I believe it. I believe the the teen star at the time was named Eric Von Detten, uh-huh. uh, and the movie was so it transplanted the story not just to the modern day and to the U.S. but to the world of aggressive inline skating, which Wikipedia assures me is <laughs> is not just regular. Oh, crap. This is Hans Brinker in the Silver Skates, and the answer is Mary Mae Stodge. Thinking, I was thinking that too. Uh, I thought that she was later, but yeah, I was thinking Mary Mae Stodge too. Uh. 
I love yeah. that book. But anyway, sorry. So so the movie was called Brink uh, and takes <gasps> place in Yeah. But of course, the original took place in Holland and was about ice skating in the 19th century. And yes, it is uh, the author, Mary Mapes Dodge. Yeah, that was, it's about it's ice skating, but also like the, the thing about, that also doesn't apparently uh, hold up as well as I had hoped, but it was, it's still an enjoyable book, but it also is very much of the, you know, if you read Moby Dick, it's all about, you, you learn way more about whaling than you ever thought you would. And, and I think I learned way more about the Netherlands than I ever thought I would uh, from reading Hans Brinker. That's not a bad thing if you're a quizzer. <laughs> yeah, but it's still not a ton. <laughs> <laughs> I was this, this was not the book that I was I was uh, trying to remember the five little peppers and how oh, they grew. I was thinking oh. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm myself. So I wasn't really sold that it was necessarily a children's book. I mean, I couldn't I, I always I was sort of thinking more broadly than that. Maybe I should have focused on the sort of juvenile literature thing that yeah. Okay, so we'll march on now. At the end of this round, these scores are Victoria 0.1, Guy 0.1, Susanna 0.1. <laughs> oh, it's a really tight it's a bar Determined nothing! Nothing has been determined. First and last. <laughs> Hi, this is Future Yogesh, breaking in with a compensated announcement from our friends at NAQT, the National Quiz Bowl Organization. They've set up a Quiz Bowl-style online game called Buzzword that you can play from the comfort of your own internet-connected device. And until Tuesday, September 8th, there's going to be a special TV-themed game that you can compete in. The questions are just like Quiz Bowl toss-up questions, where the clues go from hard to easy, and you get more points the earlier you interrupt with the correct answer. Except these questions are going to be 100% about TV, and you'll get to compare your scores with other players across the world. It's a solo event that costs $5 to play, and if you'd like to participate, just sign up at naqt.com slash go slash yrtv. That's naqt.com slash go slash y as in yogish, r as in route, tv as in television. naqt.com slash go slash yrtv. I'll also put the link in the Recreational Thinking Facebook group, and please use that link so they know you were referred by me. You can play anytime you have a spare hour or so between now and Tuesday, September 8th. Thanks! Okay, so now we will start the not-all-that-hard round. Calibration is an imperfect science, but I try to make a increase in difficulty as the game goes on, so these should be the easiest questions. So in this round, and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Disclaimer, not intended to be a fair, comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. May relate directly or obliquely. Keep everyone on their toes. I won't reveal the categories, and I think you've all done a good job of hiding them from each other. So until they, maybe once they become evident, I might, but at the start, I will keep them all secret. So for these questions, before you can answer, your opponents get to confer and work together. Not just uh, unofficially confer like Susanna was doing, but... <laughs> but actually confer and try to steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes, to build suspense, I might throw the question over to you without telling you if your opponents got it right. In those cases, you may well just assume that they got it wrong, because if they got it right, you won't be getting any points. So at this point, I normally give a description of how the bonuses work. Um, so here, again, this is you know mostly a light entertainment podcast. Sometimes we have to to put in a, uh, a somber note. So I do, you know, I'm, I'm indebted. We're kind of now getting to a point where I, I kind of have things down a bit, but I'm, I'm indebted to the people who helped me out at the beginning, the the contestants on my unreleased pilot, the Sailors family, Ronnie, Jillian, and Jeremy, um, and also to the contestants who helped me out, or, you know, even on the first, this whole first set of episodes when, because when I did the pilot, I had no idea what I was doing. When I did these episodes, I only mostly had no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> 
and you so were one of, mostly dead. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. So so one of the contestants from our first post pilot episode, Harvey Silikovitz, just publicly announced that he has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, mm. uh, and so we wish him all the best with that. And, and you know, obviously a very uh, experienced quizzer, and I'm grateful to him for, for volunteering so early. Part of his legacy uh, is that he, in the first episode, you know, was a very good sport about being repeatedly stolen from in his uh, area of expertise, because it overlapped heavily with that of uh, Mike Berger and other contestants. So as a result of that, and as a result of the suggestion made actually by one of today's contestants, Guy, we modified the game starting in episode three. We've added in bonus questions. These are basically questions that are kind of of quasi randomly sprinkled in throughout the game and basically if your question gets stolen from you you will sometimes get a chance to answer a bonus for half of the points of the steal we've been doing them for several episodes now they haven't changed the outcome of any games but they've given people who get stolen from a chance to demonstrate knowledge they've given listeners a few more questions to listen to so it looks like they're here to stay and thank you to guy for making that suggestion and a note again to listeners out there for this please feel free to offer feedback because as i demonstrated some of that feedback may end up being incorporated into the game just as guy's suggestion was and again bonuses will go with some not all of stolen questions they will relate to the question but won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty all right so now we'll uh, go back to regular podcast mode and start the game these questions are not all that hard so they will be worth two points as a steal one point as a specialist and the points will go to both stealers even if only one of them knows the answer so the first question, Victoria is in specialist position, so it will be directed first at Guy and Susanna, trying to steal from her. Here's the question. Flash freeze your way to new terrain is the tagline for a compact flash freezing product sold by PolyScience. It was inspired by a device created by Chef Grant A. Chats. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I think at it's his, Ackett's. Yeah, yeah, it at, is. Okay. At his Alinea restaurant, and I did look up how to pronounce Alinea, uh, <laughs> in Chicago, that allows you to put things on a surface and instantly freeze them. The name of that product is the Anti-What? Uh, hmm. So I would think I would think so they use a lot of it's molecular gastronomy and they uh, they use a lot of um, uh, dry ice and that stuff. I, I would almost call it the anti-boiler. So we're putting it on a surface. Yeah. So or the anti-melter. Hmm. So a restaurant in Chicago that uses some kind of technology, probably dry ice, to hmm. What's a good? It, it, it probably has a really fun name. Victoria is smiling, so I think we're, to- <laughs> we're toast if we don't get this. Um, Victoria, she's mostly smiling yeah. because she she's getting me. Uh, we're getting reservations at Alinea. Um, at least she promises. So no, we are. Uh, we are. We are. Yeah. Well, we're, we're gonna try. Yeah, we certainly are. <laughs> it's and on if the she calendar. Today, she's paying. So we're at anti-boiler. <laughs> Anti-boiler. Um, so like there's anti-matter, anti... What's a, what's a good... Is there a good pun that we're not getting, Susanna? Like anti-boiler sounds fine to me if we don't get anything else. You could go with the ant thing, anti-Griselda, anti... <laughs> I don't know, oh. antiques roadshow. Uh, this tells you why I'm not <laughs> known for my puns. <laughs> it's actually the anti-Bengals. Um, yeah, anti-Bengals. Uh, anti-Bengals. Anti-Bengals. Uh, so say it again, it's, it's, a, it's a device where you put... You put stuff on it and it freezes instantly, right? A little flash freezing product, compact. You put things on a surface and they pretty much instantly are frozen, freeze, frozen. Okay. So a blast chiller is sort of the closest thing we have to that yeah. now. Um, so anti-freeze, anti... Um, 
anti-evaporator anti what's anti- so freeze and boil i i keep thinking that boil is the is the opposite of freeze yeah but, yeah yeah I'm just, I'm just trying to think of puns no i know i'm i know that boil yeah, yeah. Freeze. yeah um strategies for life in general anti anti oven anti microwave um the anti-bake oven no i mean what would, <laughs> I mean, just oh, wow. what, what would be what would be cute and marketable? Um, uh, well, it's not a sous vide, although that's the kind of thing that they would use. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, although I don't believe you can have foie gras in Chicago, or did they repeal that now? Let's see. I mean, I don't know. I think we could think of puns all we want to, but well, but if I, if anti if, if anti boiler kind of popped into your head, I, I think if you've got like even if it's just a you know, intuition. I don't know that I have anything better. So yeah, I mean, the point is that we we know what it does. Although basically, Yogesh kind of said what it was, so it's not like we're yeah. really proving anything. But um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's not the yeah yeah, I, yeah. I go go, of, go with your go yeah. with your gut, Susanna. I'm 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 good with that. Yeah. Well, my it's not it's not that my gut is particularly uh, good I, about these things, but you know, I got uh, we'll just we'll just stick with it. That's fine. Say the anti-boiler. That's that's something earlier. All right. Victoria? So, uh, you know, like Susanna said, we are we are going to be attempting to get Alinea reservations in a couple weeks. And I put the date when you would call to get those on the calendar. And my daughter flips out. And she's like, oh, my God, am I going to Alinea? Am I going to Alinea? And I said, no, I'm going to be in Chicago in a couple months. And my friend and I are going to try to get... And she's like, I have idolized that restaurant since I was three. <laughs> and the reason she said that is because when she was around that age, I got the Alinea cookbook. And it's it's giant. You know, it's about like probably eight or ten pounds and about almost two feet long. Like it's it's a it's a work of art, really. And I used to let her look through it with me when she was really little because the photography is amazing and she likes food. So I have that and I also read all of the Alinea at home blog when that was a going concern. So I have actually seen this thing in action. It's called an anti-griddle. Yeah. Alrighty. So before well, there you have it. I had to hop on YouTube just to know how to pronounce Alinea, and I still don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. Um, so as you if can it see, makes I you feel any better in the in the art. I mean, his his big thing is he uh, he had was it was it throat cancer or he tongue had tongue cancer? cancer. Yeah. yeah, it was. And so for a chef, obviously, particularly of one of um, molecular gastronomy was such a big deal and so like all the articles would say you know grant ackets and then it would say ackets rhymes with packets or something yeah so when and when he had it the first couple of oncologists that he went and saw told him that he was going to have to amputate his tongue yeah um and he basically decided to do a a kind of very risky chemotherapy regime that had never my understanding is had never really been tried for the type of oral cancer that he had and at this point it must be a about eight years oh yeah at least it's been a while yeah so it sounds like he's been in remission for a good long time yeah, so good uh, on you, Grant. Okay, so, so it is it is possible to impress me with uh, supplementary knowledge I did not know. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> so, so obviously I had a very different upbringing from uh, from your daughter of the, the restaurant. <laughs> you didn't hear about Olivia when we were kids? The restaurant my parents idolized was called Golden Corral. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in fairness, I did not grow up eating fancy food either. Restaurant food was a was a rare and special treat. 
Yeah. We also, for a special occasion, we would go to Shakey's Pizza and Buffet. Yeah. So. Did you have a magician at yours like we do at ours? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Oh, well, I guess you're just missing out then. Yeah, <laughs> I missed out many things. Okay, so the next question will be direct first to Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. It's a short one. What is the flagship product of Hanson Brothers Beer Company of Tulsa, Oklahoma called? Tulsa, Oklahoma, Hanson Brothers Beer Company. Um, the, the question for me is whether it's, how is Hanson spelled? Is it H-A-N-S-O-N or E-N? H-A-N-S-O-N. I okay. think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, we would probably guess. I, think I, it's a, little, a little Charlestown Chiefs action. I, 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 have a, I have a delightful, punny idea. Yes, and so my guess is it's something to do with Slapshot and the Hanson Brothers. Oh, that um, is not what I was thinking. I was oh. thinking that the answer was Oh, that's right. No, 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 you're right. You're right. You're right. It is the Hanson. And you would not think that the Hanson Brothers have a brewery, but they do. So my, my punny guess was mm hops. Yes, that is correct. I believe you are correct. I, I have heard about that. So yeah. <laughs> this is why, this is why uh, Victoria and I are... We are um, heterosexual life partners. Yes, we are hetero life mates. So, uh, yes, yeah. we are... Uh, Good, good for you guys being the top pair or whatever. But you know we're we're up there. <laughs> if I if I could ask Yogesh for help though, I think we'd be in pretty good shape since well you wrote this. <laughs> Nobody wants my help. <laughs> I didn't institute it. Yeah, you can ask Andy for help thing. Like uh, you used to do on Millionaire, you could ask John Hodgman. Yeah. So yeah. So so consider Andy the John Hodgman here if you want Where's to Ryan consult. Chafee? Come on. <laughs> you're you're my plus your one. friend from TV. Yeah, my friend from TV. Oh no, my helper. Your helper. Yes. He was my helper. My helper from TV. Ryan Chafee, who is of course best known for uncredited script help on the excellent film Cry Wolf. Oh yes. Uh, Yes, that He's was best known for that. We <laughs> did go through the no only one person has seen it and it's me, except then we found out that the other person who has seen it is Yogesh. <laughs> <laughs> somehow that movie with a gorgeous redheaded woman star, I somehow managed to see. Uh, yeah. But um, so I have to look at the actually under the Hanson Brothers, actually the first band called Hanson Brothers is Canadian and was formed and I was a bit surprised how they found that name and then I realized, oh, they were named after the Hanson Brothers of some slap shot. Yeah. But their stuff. But this beer company, though, Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the home of the other Hanson brothers, the ones who were the boy band, and their flagship product is, in fact, called Mahop. Yes. <laughs> old time good. hockey, yeah. Old time. Oh, that's see, that's what the other Hanson brothers. Old time hoppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the most enjoyable things about craft breweries is how many puns they can come up with for hops. There's Tricera hops, top yes. of the hops. There's just tons and tons of really really good ones. But that's more. I'm taking one notes. of the best. When, when you first said when you first said Hansons, I actually I'm glad you spelled it because it H A N S S E N S is like a Belgian one that. Yeah does lambics experimental cassie and stuff but once you spelled it and said tulsa i'm like yeah it's the um, hops one but good yeah, job guys. tulsa yeah tulsa uh, i i should have guessed with tulsa yeah but um I, I, I did not know that hansen was from tulsa that that was that was news to me <laughs> they can stay there <laughs> <laughs> no i give them i give them credit they they're more you know they accept and welcome their their reps as yeah. you know who they are so yeah they're no recent they're song with the video with uh, Weird Al. It was an homage to the Blues Brothers. Very entertaining. Yeah, the, as far as former child stars go, they were definitely in the upper echelon in terms of uh, keeping their good head on their shoulders. And they, like, they, they keep releasing album after album. They're sort of the, I mean, you could go one direction and say 
that's the uh, guided by voices of former child stars. But, um, but yeah. every time I make a guided by voices joke, Victoria laughs, and that just makes me so happy. All guided by voices are funny. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, everybody. I feel like everybody knows more about guided by voices than I do, but I can still make it. But um, yeah, no. The thing I didn't realize was how many albums the Pet Shop Boys had made. They made like they had ones just this year. Yeah. Yeah, they make like three albums a, a year or something, and it's not like they just dug them out for you know the the 2012 closing ceremonies, which was fabulous. Okay, so now the next one goes to. I like how you just said One Direction in there without even meaning it as a pun. Don't think <laughs> I didn't think it. Don't think I didn't think it. <laughs> I was like, should I interrupt my train of thought? No, because there are only 85,000 more opportunities to do so in the rest of the. <laughs> All right. So as much as I, I hate to move on, we must. So Guy and Victoria now trying to steal from Susanna. The name of which best-selling novelist has been redacted from this 2010 excerpt from my profile in UK Vogue? So here's the quote. Christian Louboutin may be the shoe designer of choice for stars, including Victoria Beckham, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Jennifer Lopez, who even wrote a song about his sexy heels. But the designer has revealed that his, quote unquote, super top customer is actually author X. She comes to Paris. She literally buys everything, Louboutin says of the author, who reportedly owns in excess of 6,000 pairs. Then she flies back to New York, says, I'm a little disappointed there's nothing in the store, and walks out with 80 pairs. She is super. He probably said super, actually. But um, that, yeah, that's the quote. But I redacted the author's name. Who is it? So, so I have I have two thoughts on this. So thought one is Sophie Kinsella, who wrote the Confessions of a Shopaholic books. Oh. So, I mean, that would seem to be kind of on brand. But like 80 pairs of Louboutins, that's going to be like... $32,000 at a pop. Really, really successful author. Right. Yeah. And and the other name that came to mind because of that is Danielle Steele, because I know that her daughters are kind of like socialite fashionistas who are known for having really enormous wardrobes. So those were the two names that came to mind for me. I would go with Danielle Steele over Kinsella, just because unless Kinsella has some sort of inherited wealth, even for an author as successful as she is yeah I mean, that's, that's a lot of money i mean you're, that, you're, that's you're danielle steel money that is right? danielle steel money and, <laughs> yeah. she is, and she i know that she is one of the wealthiest authors and they also said new okay. york like uh, other people who i knew would be in the same financial tier you know people like nora roberts i kind of don't think she's new york whereas danielle steel i'm i'm almost certain is i don't know what the year was I mean judith krantz uh yeah. judith krantz i don't well how long ago was it i don't know um her biggest books were in like the late 70s early early 80s like scruples and that sort yeah. of thing i think that you're talking like that era yeah the date on the quote was 2010 okay i like, I like danielle Steele the best of those okay i'm comfortable with that yeah me too Let, let's lock it in lock in danielle Steele. i was curious if anyone would try and go for jk rowling who personality wise is a terrible fit for the quote but wealth wise does seem to fit mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you said go back to new york the quote though and she doesn't live there oh that is a good point you? Uh, yes. Wow. Uh, point. Yes. So, so uh, Danielle Steele is in fact correct. 
Boom. Well so I, that was very interesting that you would say that because, yes, I would go for Danielle Steele, except for the knowledge that I would think that she was most associated with San Francisco because she's very well known for that that ah. house and, you know, all that stuff. And she, she's very active in the San Francisco social scene. But then when you said her daughters, I was like, oh, yeah, Vanessa Trena and all that. So, yeah. Yeah, like I, I, I was kind of I went through like a little brief fascination with like the whole New York socialite thing because, you know, it's kind of like a train wreck you can't look away from. Mm-hmm. And uh so that's how I learned about like her daughters are fashion plates and socialites. We're definitely dipping our toe into that well of knowledge that women know much better than men. Which is women be not shopping. Right. <laughs> not not a bad thing at all. All right. I, I always like to learn about things. It's nice to learn about things I already know about, but even better to learn about things I don't know about. It is it is my longstanding contention that the topic with the biggest gender skew that gets asked about in trivia is not fashion or makeup or or things about women specifically it's just recent books that actually now that you say that i mean you look at us i mean this is the gruesome twosome that one geek (laughs) so i mean that's 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 what won us equal in what was it 2016 2017 because we did we completely ace that round We, we we did not know the title of the r kelly memoir oh nor would i want to but um oh no yeah that being that, I was so happy I remembered Haruki Murakami's book because I'd written an only connect thing about titles that are of the form what we talk about when we, when talk, we about. talk about. That was that yeah. is one of the trivia gets I am I am most proudest most proudest yeah, yeah I can really talk um <laughs> I I'm proudest of just like boom yeah yeah I was so proud of pulling that out and then I completely blanked on the name of Amy Chua's book which is yeah. so annoying. I read excerpts from it and then when after I didn't look it up or anything I just you know afterwards I got in line for the bathroom and it just popped into my head and oh, I that's my the worst up. yeah we have all been there but it's the worst mm-hmm. all right so Guy and Susanna now trying to steal from Victoria what term derived from the French for to tinker was coined by Claude Lévi-Strauss in The Savage Mind to describe how human myth-making draws upon existing material to create solutions to societal problems as opposed to the more orderly problem-solving he contrasted with the engineer? This term frequently pops up in post-structuralist philosophy, but has also been used to describe improvisation and recontextualization in fashion, cooking, and the arts. Hmm. No, this is interesting because I did used to do, before I was a musicologist, I used to study literary theory and post-structuralism and all that fun stuff. But but then I decided to go for a real lucrative career and I chose opera singing. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, sometimes I leave the seminar before the post-structuralist theory comes in. So I just say, you know, après moi, le déluge. That's terrible. No, oh my God. No. I that one. It was painful. If I could think of a Guattari pun right now, I would, I would, but I won't because I just, yeah. <laughs> Levin, us yeah. leave this topic behind. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop. I promise. No, it's a, it, it, it's okay. I, I'm trying to like. I've heard this before. I've come across this before, and I'm trying to think of what this word is. So tinker, tinkering, and you said you said it was like French for tinkerer. Yeah, to tinker. Um, uh, engineer to Claude Levi Strauss. You said so. fashion. What was it again? Fashion and fashion, cooking, and the arts. Fashion, cooking, and the arts. Um, I mean, there's experiment, but that's not. Uh, it's 
rejigger. Well, it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like a word that I think means okay. I'm just gonna talk about what I think it is. Like yeah. to tinker, to play. Like it's not aleatory because that that that's you know things that are according to chance. But it's like um it's not frisian. It's it's like something like that. Frittering. Where no. It, it, it's sort of like 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 dabbling and browsing. Dilettantism. Yeah, something like that. But but there's like a fancy five dollar <laughs> French term <laughs> that kind of means that that I've come across before. But um, it is it has been a long time since I've dove into theory. So yeah, at least, at least well, at least that particular kind of realm of, of theory. Um, I mean, there's the classic the classic use of the phrase amateur, the word amateur. But that's not I think yeah, that's like, not um, doing. There was like what what was the what was the uh, you, you might get what was the Bakhtin term for the carnival one that might be related to this Bakhtin Bakhtin B-A-K-T-H-I but but I don't don't know if that's going to get us there um like Anomi is not Anomi no that's like the not it um no I'm just thinking of French things um Grand (laughs) Guignol Um, that, well, that's the ad. That's a theater. Mm-hmm. That's a theater, but that doesn't mean to tinker. It's sort of theater of the grotesque. I mean, that's the yeah. uh, um, frippery. No, frippery well, is sort of the yeah, kind well, of like fri- that. Frippery is like is is the is a noun. Is the added the added stuff. It's it the the Star Wars equivalent would be greebles. Um, uh. So you know, frippery is when you when you add lace and you know extra spices and just all sorts of useless things. And um, might this end with the letters? M-E-N-T, like digressement, de, 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 de um, um, something like that. Something um, like that. Um, oh, uh, 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 passementerie. Um, passementerie is, shoot, it's a, how do I explain it? It's, uh, Yogesh, can you please read the question again? All right. Uh, what term derived from French for the tinker, coined by Claude Lévi-Strauss in The Savage Mind, described how human myth-making draws on existing material to create solutions to societal problems, contrasted with the more orderly problem-solving of the engineer, frequently pops up in post-structural philosophy, also been used to describe improvisation, recontextualization in fashion, creating and the arts. <laughs> so, so we're talking about the Imp- fox and not the hedgehog again. Um, Imp- improvisation. <laughs> I did just take an improv class. Um, yeah, the, so Ron, um, the cook. Not the, devise, not the Devising... No, redevising, re. I mean, I keep coming back to rejiggering and re. Yeah, it, it's it is it's exactly like that. It's like it's reshuffling. Re, yeah. Ah, gonna kick um, myself when I hear this. Um, what's that? No, it's not in Jean Mom because that's a that's a um it's like a it's a poetry and a, a dance thing I think. I'm gonna um, suggest that you move toward an answer just for time. Okay. For- um, let's go. What was one of the ones you frippery? <laughs> Frippery. It's it's not uh It's a great word. Frippery. Yeah. It's like I don't it's. know. <laughs> Go for it. Um yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I think we're I think we are both raw and cooked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this one, so. oh. Alrighty. So are we looking for a noun or a verb here? You didn't say. I'll accept any word form, adjective, noun, verb. <laughs> Um, pronoun uh, <laughs> uh um i'll say uh yeah i mean dilettantism isn't the isn't the where we're going but i feel like that's it's sort of it's, it's, it's sort of it's the on that road yeah yeah let's yeah, go with that i don't know what are you locking in dilettantism all right victoria so i'm not at all certain this is right but a word that i've seen in all of these contexts that does mean something similar is bricolage <laughs> so that's what i'm going with oh uh, yeah uh, yeah so he contrasted the engineer with the 
bricolore. Yeah. yeah. I still like frippery, though. I'm using that. <laughs> frippery is an awesome word. It is. I will say, though, like, I'm sensing a thing here. Victoria's questions are all like, you know, we've got post-structuralism, something or other, Claude Levi-Strauss, you know, the engineer, the tinkerer. And I'm like, mine, me- meanwhile, are, so who buys a lot of shoes? <laughs> 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 well, you did supply the category, so... I... Yeah. <laughs> so now, Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. At the 1538 Battle of Preveza, the naval forces of the Holy League, which was an alliance created by Pope Paul III at the urging of the Republic of Venice, were decisively defeated by the Ottoman fleet commanded by Hayreddin Barbarossa. So here's the question. Which Italian admiral, whose name to this day evokes strong memories for New Yorkers of a certain age, was the supreme commander of the fleet on the losing side. Okay. So Andrea Doria, maybe? Andrea Doria is definitely one of the two names that immediately came to mind. And the I other... I that I, there was some question that I, I... I mean, I never thought of the... I mean, of course, you know, Andrea is a... Andrea is a male name in Italy. Mm-hmm. And um, but so there's, a, I never... there's a, a ship called the Andrea Doria. Well, no, that's the point. And so yeah. the, you remember the episode of Seinfeld? This is this is how I get all my knowledge, of course. Is the episode of Seinfeld where the guy was it the guy in George's building who they were giving him preferential treatment for getting a, a good apartment because oh, yeah, I'm not the Andrea Doria survivor. Susanna, do you honestly think that I'm the person to ask? Do you remember this from an episode of Seinfeld? I know that's the <laughs> that's the difference between you and me. Like we would get we would come to the same thing, except you would be like, yes, I remember when I was going over my my things about, you know, historical events that happened in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, yeah, I saw it in an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> we would probably still both be right. But um, I do watch some things, just not many. Yes, there no, that's go. true. Um, but anyway, so there's, I want to say that I heard a some trivia question with that recently about Andrea Doria being the name of an admiral. And since yeah, I, yeah, it is. And, and I believe the Andrea Doria was like, it sank off of like Long Island or something and I, mean, I want to say it was in like the 50s and so I feel like we're narrowing it down to a, a good place I think that you're right the other name I want to throw out just in case is the other Italian commander of that era that I know of is Enrico Dondolo nothing's uh, jumping out at me for nothing is for, jumping out at me yeah. for work on that whereas I think that Andrea Doria I think you're right so yeah. let's go with that okay yeah let's go with that all right lock in Andrea Doria and so Guy's bonus is going to be pretty easy now, I think, because it's just which TV character... Stop! Stop! Don't give this to me! You're giving me a TV character. Wait, why was there no... Wait, I didn't get a bonus about shoes. (laughs) Christian Louboutin created a Last Jedi shoe. I could have... Anyway. Really? Yes. That is new Uh, to me, and I love it. So which TV character dismissively described the sinking to a fictional survivor as it eased into the water like an old man into a nice warm bath, no offense, and then later told him, the Stockholm may not have sunk yet, but I will. (laughs) Well, I don't know anything about TV. You were just talking about Seinfeld, so I hope that has something to do with it. So yeah, I think Enrico Dondolo was the fourth crusade guy. I think he was the one who sort of had a lot to do with like the 1204 Aaron to, to Constantinople. Way off time-wise. Yeah. Sounds I, like- I think. I'm like 90, 80% sure, but I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, I am going to say like the person on Seinfeld, oh man, who probably would say something like that would be maybe George. I'm going to go with George. Andrew, is that correct? I believe that's correct. All right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Woo! So everyone did gets I, did I Television. Woo! 
They got the Danielle Steele question correct. Didn't I get a bonus question on that? As I said up front, the bonuses are quasi-randomly sprinkled in unevenly. They will not be attached to every question. Well, again, I'm just saying now. I'm happy to give, yeah, I mean, let's give Susanna, well, if if there's a bonus for Susanna, let's give it to her. Yeah. Because again, you get who wears, who who buys lots of shoes and (laughs) I get the, yeah. The bonuses are only worth half as much as the steals. They're not going to swing the competition unless it's super close. Did I get did I get a Triceratops? I don't think I got a, a, a mm, hop. I also did not get a bonus when he was stolen from. But all but, right, uh, yeah. all right. I'm just yeah. pointing it out. I'm just pointing it out. Right. No. It's it's basically just think of it as an element of chance in the game, like in Monopoly when you turn over those cards. Sometimes they help you, sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, yes. The ship that crashed into it, the Stockholm, is today the MV Astoria. It's the second oldest seagoing vessel uh, of its kind that's still operational. Do any of you know, for no points, do any of you know what the oldest is? A seagoing vessel that's still operating? It's a tugboat. It's a tugboat that is... Oh, wait, the, all the seagoing vessel, like, anywhere? Like, of, of this type, like, large passenger liner cruise ship type. Oh, Titanic. Yeah. Now, I'll just tell you, it's called the Sea Cloud. It was formerly the Angelita, the personal yacht of Rafael Trujillo. Oh, wow. Yes. Jeez. But it was originally built and commissioned for Marjorie Merriweather Post. And you all just lost the challenge again. Uh, yeah. right. Man, I'm, you know, the, the, the last category that I considered doing and ultimately decided against was indie rock. And I think I would have been basically guaranteeing myself an animal collective question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bear, baby tear. <laughs> so the Edward Norton question was essentially an animal collective one in disguise. Uh, Okay, so now to Guy and Victoria trying to steal from Susanna. I have a gift for enraging people, but if I ever bore you, it will be with a knife, is not only my new life model, but also a a quote from the entertaining 1982 memoir, Lulu in Hollywood, by which silent film star and hairstyle icon, who later became a perceptive critic and essayist published in major journals like Sight and Sound. I think this might be Pauline Kael. I know I came across this recently. Um... I, I have absolutely nothing on this. So I'm just going to listen to you and see if anything. <laughs> I mean, that's dangerous with anything to do with movies. I'll tell you that. Silent film star. So, I mean, the, the obvious ones are like Lillian Gish, Zazie Pitts. Was she silent? I think so. <sighs> Did any of those folks play Lulu in a Wojciech movie? <laughs> or like, is that what Lu- what would Lulu in Hollywood refer to? If that's her memoir, mm. Lulu must be a major character. Did any of them star in a movie where their character's name was Lulu? A Wojciech adaptation of an opera? I don't know. I'm just tr- I'm, I'm trying to trigger yeah, your memory because it, my, my memory is failing on these. Um, but it's somebody who went on to become a critic and hairstyle icon. Um, is Pauline Kael kind of like that? So she did go on to become a major critic and yeah, like yeah. her heyday was far enough ago that her having been old enough to have performed in silent movies wouldn't shock me. So Pauline Kael was a silent movie actress before she was a film critic. That I don't know. I think she is of an age where it's plausible. Can you repeat the part of the question after the quote, Yogesh? So not only my new life motto, also a quote from the entertaining 1982 memoir, Lulu in Hollywood, by which silent film star and hairstyle icon who later became a perceptive critic and essayist published in major journals like Sight and Sound. 
I mean, honestly, she's the only major film critic that's around that age I can think of. So he's decluing this because Pauline Kael is not best known for publishing in Sight and Sound. She's best known. Was she the New Yorker film critic? Right? Yeah. Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. So we're assuming he's decluing it if we're going with Pauline Kael. Yeah. But somebody who's that good of a writer can come up with a really great quote like that. Did Pauline Kael have anything to do with hair? I wouldn't know. I don't know either. Lillian Gish would not have gone on to become later or something, right? So, I mean, it's not going to be, because if it's if it's anyone else, it would be somebody at the very tail end of their career by 1984, of their life. And also probably somebody who was making films near the tail end of the silent film era. Because if they were writing a memoir in 82, you know, if they were starting their film career right around 1900, that's pretty old. So I'm guessing it's somebody yeah. who, who was briefly in films closer to 1920 is just my hunch calling kale that old uh maybe maybe not i mean i i I feel like she was doing criticism around the the 60s and 70s okay 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 i could be off on that i think that's the best thing we've got because i really can't make heads or tails of this it's not my my yeah i I think i think you know whatever category this is i think Susanna chose it well (laughs) um uh, you want to just go with that do we have yeah I, i think pauline kale sounds good Yep. I know I saw this quote recently, but I can't remember who. Pauline Kael. All right. Pauline Kael, a wonderful writer, influential in many ways. I am fairly certain not a single person ever looked at her and said, I want that hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> so I will pass this to Susanna. Um, I have absolutely no idea what I said as a as a category of note, although shoes, I think everybody knows that about me, including every single person who watched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, <laughs> but uh, my guess here is Louise Brooks. Yeah. So Louise Brooks, most famous silent film by the German director G.W. Pabst. Pandora's Box later fired an album by Lou Reed and Metallica, of all people. Oh. That was after her character, which was Lulu. I actually yeah. always assumed that album was based on the opera. No. Yeah, I did too, but I thought that Lulu was in relation to Louise Brooks. I mean, like like her name, but... That makes sense. Right. So, yeah. So, as, so you can see from the title of her memoir, it was associated with her, probably a useful nickname because it was similar to her name. But no, it came from the Franz Wedekin play that the silent film was based on. Does anyone remember how that uh, how that ended? Badly. So, didn't open. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, in the last scene, she decides to become a prostitute on Christmas Eve. And with the, the sort of luck that uh, silent film heroines are so known for... Her very first client as a prostitute just so happens to be Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Whoa. I laugh at it. I'm like, oh, look at that. <laughs> Is this a comedy? <laughs> it's not a comedy. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. So now Guy and Susanna trying to steal from Victoria, who claimed to have invented the word bioethics during a discussion in his living room in 1971, the year after he ended his tenure as U.S. ambassador to France, and the year before, he ran on the Democratic ticket as that party's vice presidential candidate. So we're looking at 1972. The year before? So 1970 would be when he ended his time as ambassador. 72 would be when he ran on the Democratic ticket. So who was the official, the final nominee? Was it McGovern? Yeah, in 72. Yeah, this this is, I mean, I'm thinking it's, so this is the vice presidential. Right. And so was it, was that Eagleburger who got sunk by the mental health thing? But the, uh, I'm trying to think who the um, bioethics 
I mean, this is not Edmund Muskie, right? Well, be clean for Gene, Gene McCarthy. He was a he was also a presidential candidate, I believe, wasn't he? Eugene McCarthy was. So was no, that that's too wait for him. Um, we're looking at somebody like Muskie, Rockefeller, McCarthy. Yeah, we're we're in that realm. Man, U.S. ambassador to France claimed to have coined the term bioethics. I mean, so this is this is clearly and Nelson Rockefeller was the wasn't he the the vice he was president the vice president yeah he yeah, was so the vice vice president okay I don't think Jay I'm thinking maybe one of the the others too but um Jay was too young I'm thinking McCarthy or Muskie McCarthy popped into your head too. Well, McCarthy, I was asking, was he a, was he a pre- I thought he was a presidential candidate because I remember my dad saying that he went out, he was canvassing and he had to be clean for Gene. He had to say. So, I'm- so this is like this is like a really easy trivia nugget. So who, who lost to Nixon in 1972? Wasn't it McGovern? Yes. And then wasn't it Eagleburger, wasn't it? Or was it it was e- Eagleburger was the one that. that- yeah. But was it Eagleburger or was it some name that was like Eagleburger? Eagleburger was Eagleburger the Secretary of State or something under? So, so this is L- L- Lawrence Eagleburger, right? Right. Okay. Um, it was some name like Eagleburger that I can't remember, but I remember he was he was sunk because they found out he had undergone treatment for depression. But Eagleburger, I think, yeah. I think Eagleburger himself was the. Wasn't he like originally the Secretary of State before Warren Christopher? And then it was something. Yeah, he was, it was, something he was like in a cabinet. He was in a cabinet yeah. in the like 80s and 90s, like late 80s, early 90s. I think. Yeah, early, I, think, I, think Clinton, was, I think he was Clinton's. Yeah. Yeah. But um, what's the name? I think it starts with an E. E. Maybe it was Lawrence Eagleburger, but I. I uh, uh, yeah. I, anything? Uh, I, I would stick with that. Okay, we'll stick with that. I'm sorry, are you locking in? Eagleburger. Okay, yeah, I've been going through so many facial expressions. <laughs> but I'll just pass it over to Victoria. So I think Eagleton was the Eagleton. Ah! But I, I think was was the nominee who who was dropped after it turned out that he had mental health concerns. But I actually don't think that's the right answer. I believe it's Sergeant Shriver, who um who I believe ended up being the final vice presidential candidate for George McGovern, and who I yeah. If, remembering my bioethics history correctly, ended up kind of spearheading some of the special committees that the U.S. Senate convened to investigate certain bioethical issues. So I'm going to lock in Sergeant Shriver. Uh, yeah, so we're, you guys were well conflating done. a couple of different people. Lawrence Eagleburger was the Secretary of State. I knew it the- was something like that. I mean, I, that was my problem. I knew it was, yeah. Yeah. You could uh, tell uh, I wasn't it, I wasn't like being super c- convinced about that. I just you know we were in the general uh, area. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my father was uh, I think volunteered for the McGovern campaign in '72, and I think he actually quit in protest after Eagleton was dumped from the ticket. But he was Eagleton. Yeah, did not actually appear finally on the ticket. It was Sergeant Shriver, the well brother. All right, now Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. Perhaps due to the U.S. military post at Caserma, Ederly, which city in the Veneto region of Italy is somewhat surprisingly the birthplace of such American entertainers as the country singer Jesse James Decker and the Oscar-nominated actress Amy Adams? Amy Adams, born in... Oh, my God. Wait, wait, um, this is... Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Susanna. Um... You said, okay, say that one more time. Perhaps due to the U.S. military post at Caserma, Ederly, mm-hmm. which city in the Veneto region of Italy is perhaps surprisingly the birthplace of yes, such America? Okay. So um, I know the capital of Veneto is Venice. Yeah. Um, it seems like kind of an odd. Oh, 
the, the military base. Crap. Yeah. Um, Bari is way down south, isn't it? Bari is in Apulia. Yeah. Um, no, and I, I know that we had a question at like our local trivia thing is basically like the countries with the most current U.S. servicemen that are not the United States. Mm-hmm. And Italy was one that we kind of landed on. And I know my husband would know this because he does kind of various things in, in that general realm. But uh, what is the name of this? It's like, um, I want to say it begins with a P. Um, um, P- Piave or? Piave is a, yeah, it's a city. Uh, I don't think that's right, though. I think it ends in an A. It's um, not Asti, is it? Mm, don't think so. Asti is where they make right. Asti. Barbera. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, you know, looking at the map of, like, Italy wine regions in my mm-hmm. head and trying to see if I can place it where I can place it relative to Venice, which I, I don't think is right. Um, Luca is... I think on the other side of the country. Oh, yeah, this is driving. It's either driving guy crazy because we're not there, or it's driving guy crazy because we're close. I'm I'm not there either. That's the problem, and I know I know exactly what it is, but I am not there. Susanna, um, I think we should lock this in as quickly as we can. Sure, let's say Piave. Piave. All right. What was your guess again? Piave. Piave. All right, guy. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna basically be talking to my my, my wife and family here. So I, we I was teaching in Venice in the summer of 2017, and um this is a city that's outside of Venice. It's where the Villa Rotunda is. It's the city of Palladio. Andrea Palladio was born there. I even gave my students like extra credit if on their extra day off they would go there and see all the great Palladios in this like little town that's on the Veneto. It's not Padua. Um, And what's ironic is my family, when I stayed in Venice to teach, they actually went to Luca. Luca is in Tuscany. It's actually near near Florence. This is making it doubly frustrating. It's not Castelvecchio. It's not Pavia. Um, it, it's, it's, um, the Villa, it, where is the Villa Rotunda? This is like basic 101 stuff. And I cannot recall the name of this Italian city. It's, um, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's, it's the city of Palladio and I'm completely blanking on the name of this. Is it called um, Palladio? It's not called Palladio. Um, <laughs> Um, it's the Villa and the Villa Rotunda is like right outside of it. And there's a whole bunch of gorgeous Palladian facades and buildings that, that, that are in this. It's not a very big place. Um, it's known for being like all about Palladio. Um, and I'm not, I'm not an Italian specialist, so it's not like I, I, I don't think I, okay. The Villa Rotunda in, oh my gosh. Um, maybe, oh like castle the letter c seems good to me like it's but it's it's not castle vecchio castle franco is where Giorgione is from i don't think it's castle franco um f i have an idea after if you don't get it then i'm gonna i i have an idea but uh if that i might say before okay dish confirms or not but v-o-l-o-p I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm trying to like mouth out the beginnings of phrases in different letters to try to get me there. Yeah, sonic- yeah. You know how you, you try to get yourself there sonically? Uh-huh. Um, and I know Amy Adams was born there. This is on like a list of things that I've made. Like I remember, oh, Amy Adams was born here. I, I may have even told my students that like it, it, on the trip. Like, by the way, like, um, yeah, I'm going to go with, it's not Castle Vecchio. It, the Vila word, Costanza. It's like something, credenza, credenza, cadenza. Um, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It's like, it's not the cadenza question. 
Huh? You already George got Costanza? The yeah. Uh-huh. It's like that. Um, it's Vicenza! It's Vicenza! Yes. Whoa! Vicenza! Oh my god! Is that right? Block Vicenza. Right. Oh. Uh, so, so art history is your area of expertise. Red-headed actresses Not is mine. No. <laughs> Those two things both oh. meet in Vicenza. Jeez. I'm so happy for you guys. <laughs> I need a can opener on that. I- I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. And and a, a shout out to my my when I used to quiz in El Paso, my teammate uh, Mateo Serena from uh, Brendola in the Vincenza province uh, helped me a little bit with some pronunciations. But anything I get wrong is entirely my fault. Mm-hmm. All right. And so we'll close out the round. Guy in Victoria trying to steal from Susanna. Shortly before his 2010 suicide, Alexander McQueen designed a shoe with 10-inch heels that was worn by Lady Gaga in the video for Bad Romance. In 2015, three pairs of these shoes were auctioned off at Christie's for a combined $295,000. These shoes are popularly known by the name of which kind of animal? And it's not the fox or the hedgehog. (laughs) (laughs) Or the gastan. So I I have seen these shoes um, because I have seen the Lady Gaga shoes. And I I really want to say this is a swan because I believe that it looks like, you know, kind of the curving neck of a swan with, you know, kind of the beak pointing down. If it's the shoes I'm thinking of, then it's a swan. Mm, I don't have anything to contribute to that. Um, (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, Yeah, I, I don't I think this is the kind of question where if you've seen them and you can you know what they look like, you should probably just there's no there's no other bird you're not thinking of the swan dress worn by no 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 no. or are there any other waterfowl that (laughs) you know i mean i I wouldn't buy duck shoes no i wouldn't (laughs) buy goose shoes i like swan if i'm gonna market those yeah i think you know i mean it it may be wrong but i i have a feeling this is right let's let's (laughs) i I, I like that (laughs) i i I, I defer to victoria on this one for sure Okay, Susanna. I was pretty sure that she was that she knew exactly. What, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of a particular kind of shoe, and I don't believe that's what it was. And I also think that when I put together my shoes one day, I may have sent them past Victoria, but may, I may be thinking that might be too early. Um, but uh, did did we work on that together, Victoria? I mean, did you help me on that? On your shoes, one yes. Yeah. No, I definitely played it. Yeah, you played it. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I, I, I believe if it's, I don't think it's the swan. I think it's a goat. I believe it's the, it's a, it's a hoof kind of thing. And yeah, I think it is. Are they the ones with no heel whatsoever? No, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, oh, 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 now that I'm thinking about that, I don't, uh, maybe. Well, that was a different shoe than the one I was thinking of, but let's say goat. I believe goat is the correct one. Like goat? All right. So I, I'm pretty sure Victoria was picturing the correct shoe, because it does have that arch there that's a very kind of like a hard arch. Think about what animal has basically a hard arch or shell on its back. These are known as armadillo shoes. Oh. Oh. Somehow, goat shoes? <laughs> I, was, I, I don't know that I would buy goat shoes. That just sounds kind of... Yeah. I'm going to look that I mean, up. Stick the name chamois on it, and, you know, there you go. But, uh, but yeah, when it comes to designing shoes, sure. we can Alexander McQueen is the goat uh, in that sense. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> See, I, yeah. See, I was thinking about, I'm looking at this right now. I was thinking about the shoe, but that, yeah, that's that's ridiculous, yes. Okay, right. so I'm, I'm using for the first time a spreadsheet. Instead of doing manual calculation, I'm using a spreadsheet to do scoring. Hopefully it saves time. I'll recheck afterwards, make sure it's accurate. But I have at the end of this round, Victoria 9.1, Guy 4.1, Susanna 5.1. Okay. All right. like versions of Windows or something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So, well, to march onward, round two, the only somewhat hard round. The questions are now worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist, two points if you get a bonus, which is not guaranteed, I reiterate. Um, <laughs> okay, so this first one goes to Guy and Susanna trying to steal from Victoria. All right, so this man was the son of Marjorie Merriweather Post's first husband through a different marriage. He was also the father of an actress nominated for multiple Oscars, but not Amy Adams. What personal physician to Mobuto Sese Seiko and Surgeon oh. General of the Zaire military played a key role in stanching the first major epidemic of Ebola hemorrhagic fever. Uh, um, father of another actress. Huh. What was the deal with Mar- Marjorie Merriweather Post again? So he, he is the son of Marjorie Merriweather Post's first husband, but not with her. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Um, Ebola, physician. Mobutu. Um, um, is France... No, Francis Collins is still alive, so... Um, well, he could technically be still alive because Dina Merrill only died last year, but he would probably be, he probably would be older than Dina Merrill. So I can't remember what Francis Collins did. I know he's a, he's a, like a virologist or something. He works at the National Institutes of Health, but, um, yeah, I've got nothing. Father of, so he, he didn't say Oscar winning actress. He said multiple Oscar nominations. That could be anyone. Yeah. Um, this is not, (laughs) so this is, this is not Marjorie Merriweather Post. First husbands. Yeah, I'm not getting anywhere with this. Other uh, than just just th- throwing darts at actresses is not gonna not gonna get me far. Might get you a restraining order though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> let's see here. So 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 basically so th- this is an actress whose father is a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to just I'm just trying to go through my head and think and and I, I don't have pop culture not my strong suit at all. So I'm just trying to think of any actresses who are important actresses whose whose mother no, mother whose father is a physician. Um, Interestingly enough, Julia Louis Dreyfus's stepfather was a fairly well-known tropical medicine physician because oh. he was on the the hospital ship. Hope. I don't believe he was on the same time as my father, but he or my grandfather, but it was something something like that. But Julia Louis Dreyfus, I don't believe, has been nominated, nominated for, an, for Oscar. an Oscar. Yeah. Did did he specify? Did you specify Oscar, Yogesh? I did. Yes. Okay. Multiple. All right. Multiple Oscar nominations. Huh. Was he a Julia, military doctor? Julia, and therefore Amy Adams' father. Could be. Uh, um, Winona Ryder. Oh, I think Winona Ryder's parents were oh, Horowitz. His name was Horowitz. Yeah. I I mean, it, it, his name would be Horowitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like Winona. Winona Ryder was nominated for the movie where she's in a hospital, a mental hospital. Girl right? Interrupted, as well as I believe yeah. she was nominated for The Age of Innocence because wasn't was. that the one that we were just talking? Well, who was who was just talking about it? Maybe that was another podcast talking that about, I was like, listening like, to. It was uh, who was Cather. not nominated because... Uh, Cather, the other one. Um, oh, my God. Not Michelle Pfeiffer. It was some old broad. I can't remember who it was. <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of... I kind of like the Winona Ryder guess because it satisfies one of those categories and might satisfy more because I, I, I don't remember if her parents were physicians, either of her parents were physicians, but he they were be. definitely intellectuals. Like they were at, you know, they were some sort of brainy people. Mm-hmm. I've heard interviews with her before and she's talked about her life. And while I don't remember specifics, I remember something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So you're, are you moving forward? Uh... Yeah. I, do you have Why any, not? Susanna, did you... Are, any other avenues that you wanted to follow? No. <laughs> 
No, right. I yeah. So what are you locking in? Uh, we'll say Doctor Horowitz. I said in the info sheet for real life people, last name is by itself is generally sufficient, and that's true for this question. And the winner writer was not a nominated for Girl Interrupted. Her other nomination was for a title that we've been discussing already in this podcast, Little Women. <laughs> yes. Uh, but um, okay. So Victoria. Um. So I I do not know this on the virology side. However, thinking of actresses who might have a connection to Zaire via Belgium, I know that Marion oh! Cotillard, Marion Cotillard was was one of her nominations was for a Darden Brothers film, and they're Belgian. So I thought I would go with Cotillard. Right, well, if yeah. you're okay, hold on a minute. If you if you do or do not get that correct, I have another guess then too. So go ahead, go for it. That, that is my guess. Is is Cotillard? Okay. So again, it was although not explicit because Oscar nomination and Oscar winning are hardly are not mutually exclusive. I it was I, yeah. my guess was if if when she said Belgian, then I went oh Audrey Hepburn. Oh wow. Well, yeah. So the um yeah so like I said it was a reasonable inference that you know when I said Oscar nominated because they hadn't won an Oscar which Marion Cotillard has has yeah. Audrey Hepburn the the person who we all thought I mean a lot of people thought was finally going to break through and win an Oscar last year and then was upset and lost. Uh, oh close. Yeah uh, her wow. her grandfather. Edward Bennett Close was a banker and the first husband of Marjorie Merriweather Post. Her father, though, was Dr. William Close. That is who, new to me. Wow. Yeah, did not know that. And um, an important man whose wife did much of the behind-the-scenes work and got no credit. Something Glenn Close seems to be familiar with, based on her performance. All right. So now to Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. So as previously discussed in the unreleased pilot, a man named Jack Purvis was the only actor credited as playing a different role in each of the three movies of the original Star Wars trilogy. Now, he also appeared in three films by a certain director that are often dubbed the Trilogy of Imagination, although they don't share any characters or plot lines and take place in entirely separate fictional universes. Name that director. The trilogy of imagination that don't share... So I wonder if this is another name for like the Red Curtain trilogy by Baz yeah. Luhrmann because they are kind of linked together as a trilogy. Was that Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge? Yeah, and you know they they would meet the criterion of being kind of a trilogy, but also not you know completely different characters, different different universes. A couple of my thoughts were maybe like Ridley Scott, but that seems more science fictiony specific than just like Imagine. But the other Imagination trilogy, I thought. I don't know what the specifics would be, mm-hmm. but um, Terry Gilliam, like uh, that's time, interesting. Time Bandits, Brazil. Um, did he? He did Baron Munchausen, didn't he? Um, uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, and those are sort of. I, I started thinking in uh, in terms of. Uh, I think it was the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus was when I I thought Imagination Imaginarium kind of thing, but still I think that would be more. Um, that that does make sense. Um, um, and and I also like the era for that better than. Bob Baz Luhrmann because you're yeah. an actor who, I mean, Star Wars was what, 77 to 83, the original trilogy, so I don't know that this person would have been directing peak films around the same time, but yeah. it seems like the better bet, unless we know otherwise. Um, um, imagination. I mean, there. and what did you say? You said they were different genres? 
this too? Uh, no, I just said uh, do not share any characters or plot lines that take place in separate fictional universes. Mm-hmm. So fictional universes is an interesting choice of terms there because it implies that at least one or two are in kind of a fantasy world of some kind. Stanley Kubrick? Uh, that could be. So you've got like 2001 and Barry Lyndon and um, uh, lots of I, other options. I Dr. think Franco. Chet was kind of a, not a fantasy, but like a, what else did he do? Barry Lyndon, The Shining. What was after The Shining? Um, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket, yeah. What was after that? I, I still kind of like Gillian better. What about Steven Spielberg? Um, definitely a possibility. Well, I'm thinking sort of the, I'm thinking sort of the, um, I don't know, the the epic childlike sense of, you know, wonder yeah. that, you know, that George Lucas kind of is always getting into. And the Steven only thing Spielberg that really like... gives me, the only thing that really gives me pause with him, although I was going to say that his movies around the same time, you know, like you've got like the Indiana Jones movies, obviously those are their own trilogy. They're not going to link them in, in another one, but you've got like Jaws and Close Encounters and E.T. Yeah. Um, and Hook. Yeah. I like either of those better than Kubrick. Yeah. And I'm going to defer to you on this because, as you know, I've seen five movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, The Imagination Trilogy. Could you just read that whole thing one more time? Aside from the George Lucas Star Wars bit, please, Yoga. Doc Purvis appeared in three films by a certain director. Those films are often dubbed the Trilogy of Imagination. Basically, that just means they're grouped kind of as a trilogy, even though they don't share any characters, plot lines, or a shared universe. Couldn't be Ron Howard, could it? I don't know. like he did willow right yeah i don't know if you would call that like a universe i mean that's definitely a world but universes um yeah who else is sort of sci-fi i'm just saying like they don't cross over with each yeah. other like well, i mean like the marvel comic universe you know is um a world where certain assumptions are made right and you yeah. could also say that of they have multiple films in that universe whether whether or not they're officially listed as like the is it, you know the the quentin tarantino universe is what i would think of you know like what about tim burton uh, i would say almost all of them are the <laughs> imagination kind of that yeah that, that's what i'm thinking uh-huh. yeah the only thing is that he is a little later yeah but you could look at maybe his early movies like something like edward scissorhands and beetlejuice and Wee's big adventure i kind of like that what the heck what the heck Victoria movie expert yeah uh, yeah all of my categories for movies just spoiler (laughs) all right you're You're locking in Tim Burton sure guy um I think that Terry Gilliam did do a trilogy that might be called the trilogy of imagination I think it was Brazil 12 monkeys but I think the last movie of that trilogy whether or not it's called the trilogy of imagination was just made a few years ago and I'm trying to remember what it's called like within the past past five years maybe oh um, i know almost exactly I, what that is, but yeah yeah I, I don't know i actually don't know much about jack purvis if you'd have asked me that i might have blown that um but i actually think i'm gonna go with terry gilliam because i think he just completed a trilogy and terry gilliam's films are surreal brazil is one of my wife's favorite movies so I, i've seen brazil i've seen 12 monkeys and they're very much these visionary experiences so that trilogy may very well be called the trilogy of imagination and i know that he's done a trilogy so i am going to go with gilliam and right. cross my fingers all right so you're welcome jack. for that then <laughs> <laughs> so jack purvis playing the chief jawa in uh, star wars the chief ugnaught in <laughs> Strikes Back, the uh and, and ewok uh in return of the jedi like many of the actors in there was a little person in terms of a film made around that time that had multiple little people as kind of supporting protagonists one that you know yeah now i'm thinking yeah time bandits yes so he was in fact in that film 
he was also in Brazil. He was also in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and they were all directed by Terry Gilliam. Can I have at least like 1.39 points? Just we for... get moral victory <laughs> points and nothing else. Yeah, I, I, you I get like the next there. Windows update. You can get 1.11 or something. You know, I believe <laughs> I, iOS update. Other movies that that have a lot of little people in them. I believe you say nothing. You get nothing. Good day, <laughs> sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's keep marching. All right, guy in Victoria trying to steal from Susanna. So speaking of Victorias, of the seven currently reigning non-consort rulers of a European kingdom, five are direct descendants. <laughs> Victoria. Five are direct descendants of Queen Victoria. Five are direct descendants of King Christian the Ninth of Denmark. Who is the only one of those seven who is not descended from either or both? So reigning monarchs. Um, so, um, so let's just go through. So we have Felipe the Sixth in Spain. Okay. We have obviously Queen Elizabeth of of England. Yeah, who is? Um, we yeah. have. Is it Hakan? Is yeah. is it Hakan still I think in? The- Sick? I don't know. Yeah. Margarita is Denmark. Okay. Um, and we're talking about kings, so like Grand yeah, Duke. Yeah, regnant. Grand Duke on Henri doesn't yeah. Um Okay. What are the other ones? So so we so we've got Spain, Denmark, uh, Norway. Belgium, Belgium. Uh is it, is it Beatrix? Oh, 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 oh the, the Netherlands is Willem Alexander. Okay. King Willem Alexander. And um I don't know if there's a king of Belgium anymore. I'm not sure about that. So we've got the Netherlands, England, Norway, Denmark, Spain. We need what, two more? Uh uh, I guess. Um, um, isn't there still like a Christian? There's one in Sweden because the daughter just got divorced and it was a big deal, right? It, no, I, no, I the, trust the, you on that one. The, the, the princess of Sweden's ex-husband just committed suicide. Oh. So wow. there is a reigning monarch of Sweden. Okay. I have so that, thoughts that, on what you're saying. That'll be the sixth. <laughs> um, so we're missing one reigning <laughs> monarch. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that uh, I'm going to say two things. One is that I obviously tried to speculate on, on what e- what categories each of you guys might pick. And something involving royalty in some way was one that I considered that Susanna might pick. So just, you know, throwing that out there. And the other thing I'm going to throw out there is I am so completely at sea on this. <laughs> I am not going to be well, any help whatsoever to you. Well, I have a weird thought about this. So are we looking for the name of the monarch or the country? Yes, name. Okay. Wouldn't it be really funny if the answer was actually someone? Obviously, it's Queen Elizabeth is descended from Queen Victoria. I think. Um, I hope. Yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. Wouldn't it be hilarious if the current reigning monarch of Denmark was not descended from? Was it Christian of Denmark? You said Yogesh. Christian the Ninth of Denmark. Wouldn't it be hilarious if Margaretha was not actually? Des- it, maybe it's another house. Go with whatever you think, because I am useless on this question. <laughs> all, all I'm doing here is like trying to get in this is always dangerous but i'm trying to get inside yogesh's head but it would be really it would be it would be profoundly adorable if the answer was actually the current monarch of denmark is not descended from king christian the ninth of denmark so i'm gonna say i think by the way I, i'm doing this like 80 percent sure margaretha is still alive so i'm just gonna say margaretha and what do you think victoria does that i am uh, amenable to literally okay. anything you say here i am gonna go <laughs> I am going to go Margaretha and hope that something happened between the time Christian the Ninth was alive and Margaretha. And I have no idea when Christian the Ninth reigned, but I'm going to hope that this is just Yogesh being creative. And I'm going to say Margaretha. Surprisingly, it's actually Emma Watson. (laughs) (laughs) So close. She doesn't have red hair. (laughs) But she could. And she's not Marjorie Mayweather Post. Yeah. Other than those two things, though. But um, yeah, Margaretha, I think, was a huge uh, Tolkien fan. She created illustrations 
auditions for the Lord of the Rings, which I think Tolkien saw before he died and approved of. But she's not the answer to this question, unfortunately. So, uh, Susanna. Congratulations, so, Susanna. You've got all the names of all <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I did come up with a few that you didn't come up with. So, say it again. It was the only person, the only one of the seven currently reigning non-consorts who is not descended from Christian and or Victoria. Right. Okay. So, tell me again. It does have to be a... Just say the whole thing again. Sorry. Okay. So, seven currently reigning non-consort rulers of a kingdom. Five are direct descendants of Queen Victoria. Five are direct descendants of King Christian the Ninth. Six of them are descendants of at least one of those two people. Who's the odd person out? Um, I believe, like, if you get into the nitty-gritty here, I want to say that part of the deal here, too, is I think that the the Greek angle there, I believe that Queen Anne-Marie of Denmark is, or no, Queen Anne-Marie of, where is she? No, she's, Anne-Marie is Greece, but she is the sister, I believe, of Marguerite and also of Queen Sonia of Norway. And the princess who whose husband, former husband, just committed suicide was actually a Norwegian princess. Oh, um, okay. And so it was not, and yeah, they did, she had been divorced for a while, or not not a terrible long time, but it was, um, and he was a commoner too, so that was kind of a thing. I could get into a whole bunch of that, but I won't. I believe the correct answer is King Carl, isn't it the 16th Gustav of Sweden, because the Bernadots are not a thing related to those guys. All right, so you, you also tried to get into my head and think I'd ask about Jean Bernadotte. No, but, I wasn't. Uh, I was just saying Bernadotte. <laughs> all right, but um, he was, uh, I, I suspect at some point his descendants did marry into the other families, because this, this answer is Willem Alexander. Really? Uh, Max and Wax? Oh. <laughs> all right. I'm taking off, guys. All right. Nice to meet you all. Nice to meet you, too. Is Willem Alexander related to Marjorie Merriweather Post no. at all? No. He is an airline pilot, so uh, he has some connection to that travel yes. jet set thing. Just but, like um, Bruce Dickinson. Okay, so we'll march on next one. Guy and Susanna, not trying to steal from Victoria. Lila Stensrud, born in 2014 at Methodist Children's Hospital in San Antonio, was reported as the most premature baby to survive birth and remain reasonably healthy. To the nearest week, and I'll allow you to round either up or down, what was her gestational age at birth? Okay, so the one thing that I know is there was this, I don't know if you followed this, there's this story by the two, they're now journalism professors at the University of Indiana, I believe, and she used to be the mother used to be used to work for like the, the Tampa Bay Times and so there's this whole series of long form journalism on the baby that they had who her name was Juniper and I believe Juniper was born at 23 weeks and was ridiculously premature but still as far as I know mostly together I don't think that there were any real super complications of note I don't even think she wore glasses and it was very 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 touch and go but she ended up being fine so so we're looking at something like 22, 21, but probably really carefully, like, I don't know, 20. Yeah. We have to be within how many weeks, Yogesh? Just to the nearest week. So. Nearest week. Okay. So if the person that you're describing was born at 20, what was it? Three, I believe. Okay. So if we do 21, we cover 20, 21, and 22. If we do 20... Well, no, we... Yogesh, you're saying to the, nearest, to the nearest week, so it has to be right on, right? Basically, yeah. So the actual age is kind of... In between weeks so i'll accept yeah. it either up or down okay all right all right i, I would say know. 20 or 21 would cover a good let's range say, let's say 21 and then we can go up to 22 i don't know about 20 20 is we had well i mean i think their baby died for other reasons but um i don't think any baby has i don't know i would say 21 
isn't the point of these questions to sort of shock us with the with the amazing fact um, probably i would tr- you seem to know a lot about this so i would trust your gut on this mm. i'm just trying to like yeah you know, get into the mind of the question writer did not do me well last time so yeah. um what were you saying yogesh i was saying trust her gut or her womb yes oh. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I am the only one of the two of us who who has had a child insider. So. Are you sure? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was that Schwarzenegger movie. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'd say, let's say 21. Okay. Let's let's do it. Locking in 21? Mm-hmm. All right. So I understand the interest of, uh, of moving things along, and I won't throw it over to Victoria. She was in between 21 and 22 weeks. So 21. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so Victoria, quick uh, bonus. While we're on this cheerful topic, um, in a 1979 Nobel Prize lecture, who stated, I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion? I think this is... Did she win in 79? I believe this is a quote associated with Mother Teresa. I don't know if 79... I feel like that's a little early for her to have won the Nobel Peace Prize, but I think that's who I'm going to go with. Yeah, and that's correct. So everyone gets points on this, and we'll move to the next question. Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. Although uncredited and hidden beneath thick makeup, a woman in her late 70s named Marjorie Eden was the first person to embody which character in the Star Wars universe? Alright, say that one more time. Although uncredited and hidden beneath thick makeup, a woman in her late 70s named Marjorie Eden was the first person to embody which character in the Star Wars universe? Um, Couldn't be, could it be Yoda? I guess it was Frank Oz, wasn't it? Well, um, it was Frank and he was a puppet, but... Uh... I'm just thinking like, you know, the face could kind of be an old lady face with a lot of makeup. Um, Palpatine <laughs> so here is where I say that I have seen two of the Star Wars movies, none of them within the last 20 years. So I am not going to be terribly helpful on Star Wars questions. Okay, so let me just run through this real quick. And the B. Arthur character was not in the, <laughs> was not in the cantina. Let me think. I mean, I will. The one thing I will say is just from a question structure standpoint, when it says like the first person to embody this character, to me, that implies that the character appeared in multiple movies mm-hmm. and was played by more than one person. Mm-hmm. So that's all that's the only thing a that bunch comes of, to mind. Yeah. So it's not it's probably not Aunt Beru, although Aunt Beru was in multiple films, but she came out. She was younger in the other ones Um, under many la- levels of la- many layers of makeup. C-3PO, R2-D2, that wouldn't necessarily need makeup and. Uh, Warwick Davis was, uh, well, actually, that might be it. Well, and you said it was uncredited, Yogesh? Yes. I mean, that might be Wicked the Ewok, because even though it was Warwick Davis, that was, or Warwick, uh, we have been talking about little people in movies and, you know, under a ton of makeup, the, yeah. So that might be it. Probably wasn't a Tauntaun. Yeah, I mean, this is all me right now. So I guess it's uh, it's either an Ewok or Yoda. And eh, it could be Yoda, just watching Yoda walk around. But I don't know. What do you think, Victoria? I know that you have not... Uh... I, f- I feel like Yoda is the zeitgeist. So my inclination is to go with Yoda. I'll do Yoda. Why not? Yoda, you're locking in? Yes. Yeah, I believe the original Yoda was... Although the, the more recent one is CGI. I think the original one was a puppet. Or, well, technically not a Muppet, but kind of a Muppet. All right, so I'll... Uh, Pass it over to Guy. Huh. So I actually thought it was Yoda, too. Yoda's original name was Buffy. And I know that they messed around with Yoda, like, a little bit before they brought in Frank Oz. Like, they wanted Luke to kind of perform with a person. And then they only later kind of, like, let him... So have we established whether or not Yoda's correct? It's not correct. Oh, oh, okay. Because I really... That's what I would have gone with. So let's see. This is, um... That's Marjorie Eden, 70-plus years old, was the first 
person to embody for lots of makeup. Um, I know that when they were casting for Chewbacca, the story goes that the only thing Peter Mayhew had to do was stand up and he got the part. So I think Chewbacca has always been Peter Mayhew. The Emperor is really interesting because obviously the Emperor wears a lot of makeup. He kind of looks a little bit like a, you know, ambiguously gendered old human. So it could potentially be the Emperor. And the first time that the Emperor appears in Star Wars, the Emperor is a hologram. So that might have allowed them to fudge that a little bit. My best guess, I'm actually going to go with Darth Sidious, a.k.a. Emperor Palpatine. All right, you're locking in Palpatine? I'm going to lock in Palpatine. All right. So if you're part of the generation that grew up thinking that the Magician's Nephew was the first Narnia book, then you might also think that Ian McDiarmid has always played Palpatine. Because in, no, in 2004, he was edited in to bring them more in line with the prequel trilogy. But those of us who saw Emperor Strikes Back on VHS, well, I'm not old enough to have seen it in the theater, but even on, on VHS, we remember his voice was provided by uh, the great New Zealand actor Clive Revel, who was the original Fagin on Broadway. But I actually used to think that he was also embodied by Clive Revel, but I recently learned, no, he was embodied by a 78-year-old woman. So, yes, Palpatine is correct. Nice. And I assist to you guys for taking Yoda off the board, actually. That, that would have been <laughs> awfully enticing. Now, I'm sorry, I was totally wrong. And I not only did I interrupt you, I also said something that was completely incorrect, which was conflating him with the Grand Moff Tarkin. But I thought there was somebody else that I thought we knew that was Palpatine. But anyway, go on ahead. Right. I'm sure you can oh. edit. <laughs> Guy and Victoria, down trying to steal from Susanna. So after rising to fame with several documentaries about composers for BBC's Monitor series and earning an Oscar nod for uh, the 1969 adaptation of Women in Love, Ken Russell helmed three highly unconventional feature film biopics of 19th century composers in the 1970s. So either name one of those films or name all three of the composers who were portrayed by Richard Chamberlain, Robert Powell, and Roger Daltrey in those films. Okay, so I know for a fact one of the films is Listomania. I believe, okay. that's, I believe that's where Phoenix got the song name from and that's who Roger Daltrey played. I know one of the other composers is Mahler, but I'm pretty sure Listomania is one of the names of the movies. I have heard of the movie Listomania. I know that's a movie. I know Roger that, Daltrey that was, was in it, yeah. so yeah, yeah, we're going to go with Listomania. Oh. Right, yeah. So so the film about List with Roger Daltrey was called Listomania. The one about Mahler with Robert Powell was just called Mahler. And uh, I think recently <laughs> mentioned on, Je- on Jeopardy, the one uh, Richard Chamberlain played Tchaikovsky in The Music Lovers. Oh, okay. uh, so you're a bonus, Susanna. So Ken Russell broke through as a director back when he was still working for the BBC Monitor series with a controversial 1962 BBC film about which composer. This film placed number 48 on the BFI's 2000 list of the all-time greatest UK TV programs. TV programs, that's a that's a rough thing. 1962. Yep. And so his other ones were Mahler, List, and Tchaikovsky. Um, I'd probably say I would... I would guess Brahms, maybe. Let me think. You said it was controversial? Yes, it was. Although when I saw it, I had a little hard time understanding why, but I guess for the time it was. Okay. Maybe it's Schubert, but wonder why somebody would be controversial. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't know. Brahms, of course, Brahms did not have many lady friends. He spent time at... Oh, no, here's the thing. He spent a lot of time at a place called the Red Hedgehog. So... Let me see. I don't know. Let's just go with Brahms. And if it's not Brahms, then maybe. Yeah, let's do Brahms, whatever. It's a beautiful film. Maybe not super historically accurate, but artistically well made. And I think the, the main point of controversy was its many scenes of World War One warfare oh. accompanied by the music of Land of Hope and Glory. It was a film oh. about Elgar. Edward. 
Edward Elgar. Yeah. Good guess, though. And next question goes to Guy and Susanna, my children Victoria. Nurse and medical volunteer Clara Moss died on August 24th, 1901, after twice allowing herself to be bitten by mosquitoes that would today be classified in what genus? Could this be a Panama Canal yellow fever one or? I would think so. Something like that. I don't know what their scientific name would be. Well, there's basically one of them is called Egyptus, right? There's like a Egyptus mosquito. And then there's, 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 oh gosh, there's a couple different kinds of mosquitoes that are vectors for various diseases. So there's like one particular kind that carries malaria and there's another kind that carries yellow fever and i know that like the 1901 is about the time the panama canal was going right was being constructed and Wal- walter reed was down there um mm-hmm. you know worried about the yellow fever stuff and I-, I believe yellow fever is the one that was in the panama canal the problem mm-hmm. is that the only genus i can think of is the egyptus i don't know if that's a genus but of course egypt is near a different canal and that that might not i mean mosquitoes can obviously travel far distances and repopulate areas if they wanted to but um do you know any other genuses of mosquitoes no i I, I know one of them has it's like i don't even know if that's the the word that that's the genus word it's like it's something egyptus that's like one of the mosquitoes that you don't want to bite you but i don't have anything other than that do you know any you do you have any any mosquito mosquito knowledge or i know okay um the panama canal mosquito um hmm, yellowest feverous transmitterous i i would go with i know that there is like a a trivia chestnut genus of mosquito there's a couple of them that are bad and i'm egypt is one of them egyptus something egyptus is one of them so should we just say egyptus Susanna? That's, I'm, I have nothing else. I have I have nothing yeah, else. Yeah, so. um, you know, if, if I was more up on my lists, that I think that's got to be in there somewhere on one of my cards or something, but I'm going to go with Egyptus. All right, locking in Egyptus? Yes. All right, I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Victoria. I'm pretty sure Guy was on the right track. Egypti is the species name, yeah. if, if this is in fact correct. So the two genera of, of bad mosquitoes are Anopheles, which carry oh, malaria, yeah. and and EDs, A-E-D-E-S, which carry yellow fever. So two things. One is that I, I read a, a great book by Robert Desowitz called The Malaria Diaries just about two weeks ago. And the name Clara Moss, I don't think came up at all, but more to the point, I know which categories I chose and, and malaria would not fit. Yellow fever would. So I'm going to go with EDs. All right, you're locking in AEDs. Yeah, A-E-D-E-S. Yeah. Sure. Unsurprisingly, that is correct. Or if they had gotten it, your bonus would have been Anopheles, so... Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, Victoria and Susanna now trying to steal from Guy. So, refrain from glancing over right at this moment, but I'm about to spoil for you the ending of a short story by which author? So here's uh, the excerpt I'm going to read. It's all right, he panted. It's all right, and held out his hand, trying to smile. The child struggled to her feet and stood before him, the pixie hood falling from her head onto the floor. He stared at her, incredulity turning to horror, to fear. It was not a child at all, but a little thick-set woman dwarf about three feet high, with a great square adult head too big for her body, gray locks hanging shoulder length, and she wasn't sobbing anymore. She was grinning at him, nodding her head up and down. Then he heard the footsteps on the landing outside and the hammering on the door and a barking dog and not one voice but several voices shouting, 
Open up, police. The creature fumbled in her sleeve, drawing a knife, and as she threw it at him with hideous strength, piercing his throat, he stumbled and fell, the sticky mess covering his protecting hands. And he saw the Vaporetto with Laura and the two sisters steaming down the Grand Canal, not today, not tomorrow, but the day after that, and he knew why they were together and for what sad purpose they had come. The creature was gibbering in its corner, the hammering and the voices and the barking dog grew fainter, and oh God, he thought, what a bloody silly way to die. So that's the ending of the story. Who is it by? I mean, Death in Venice is, uh, I mean, that's, I don't Death know. Death in Venice that... could not be more different than that. I know. That's what I'm saying is Death in Venice is, uh, yeah, it's, it's very different. It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it's not a, um. So when I think of horror writers who do short fiction, mm-hmm. the names that come to mind are, are Lovecraft, Harlan Ellison, mm-hmm. which I kind of like for this, and Stephen King. Neil Gaiman. Yeah, he has done some Neil Gaiman writes a lot of uh, short stuff, and he talks about Laura and, um, see... It doesn't feel terribly old to me, and it doesn't feel Lovecraftian. Like, I would would knock that off the table. It doesn't feel too Lovecraftian. Uh, Venice. Uh, horror. Kelly Link. I would be very surprised if it's her. Roald Dahl. Same with like Carmen Maria Machado does like some some really weird surreal stuff, but I would be very surprised if it's her. Uh, Roald Dahl. That's really interesting because he wrote some, he wrote a lot of short fiction. He Um, did. And and his short fiction is very adult. Yeah. And then do you think he, he might've written something set in, I mean, it doesn't have to be set in, you know, rural England, but do you think it might've been set in in Venice? Uh, Not impossible. And bloody, bloody something or other. Honestly, of, of the names that we have said, I like either Harlan Ellison or Neil Gaiman. I think that they're the names that we have said that would be most likely to write about like a transforming yeah. entity of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think pick I one. I don't know anything about Harlan Ellison. I'm sorry to say. What's the feel of Harlan Ellison? Um, Creepy. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've read a couple of his stories and I'm not remembering titles right now. He, he wrote for, um, I know that he wrote for Star Trek uh-huh. and he's suspenseful, I guess is the word that I would use for, for, for what of him I've read, which is not a whole heck of a lot. I'm fine with going with Neil Gaiman. Um, okay. This feels possible. So let's go with it. Sure. All right. Locking in Neil Gaiman. Yes. Sure. Okay. Guy. Okay. This, this is going to be painful. Maybe not as painful as Vicenza was for me, but um, before I, I took the trip a few years ago to teach i looked at movies that were set in venice and the two that i watched one of which i watched before which is just the most wonderful movie which is wings of the dove the the merchant and ivory adaptation of of the novel is just so wonderfully done the other one that i watched is don't look now which was absolutely terrifying it's Kiefer sutherland who plays this guy who's or is it donald donald thank you yeah um he's renovating this church julie Christie is his wife and their daughter dies and they see this girl walking through Venice right who they think is like her daughter that's been somehow resurrected they keep having these surreal visions and at oh, the end of the movie like this now <laughs> and, and at, the, at the, the end of the movie Donald Sutherland appro- finally like corners what he thinks is like his child and it's like have you come back to me and like she turns around and it's this very you know like this older little like lady and like basically like kills him and he like 
he basically dies. It was directed by Nicholas Rogue, mm-hmm. and I think Donald Sutherland named one of his kids after Nicholas Rogue, if I'm remembering that correctly. The author of the story isn't part of the equation that I was thinking about when I was watching this. You know, Ira Levin came to mind as like, it's a horror story. I don't know that Ira Levin did short fiction. I know Ira Levin wrote novels that were made into movies. I really liked Victoria's description of Dahl and Ellison. Um, So I'm probably just going to pick one of those and hope that it's correct. So I'm going to go with Roald Dahl. So if this is Don't Look Now, I believe that's Daphne du Maurier. Oh, it is. I'm already locked in, so you you get that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great suspense stories, one of my all-time favorite stories, one of my all-time favorite authors. It's Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier. Mm -hmm. All right. Guy and Victoria, now to steal from Susanna. Last question of the round. It is now known that in his position as physician to the royal family, Lord Dawson of Penn administered euthanasia to end the life of King George V in 1936. So here's a question. What actor, Emmy nominated for portraying a different British monarch, and more recently seen as the King of Cool, Hollywood royalty Steve McQueen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is Lord Dawson's great-grandson? Steve McQueen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have not seen that. So I, I, I'm going to soon. Um, so let's let's think about Emmy nominated for playing a different British monarch. So this could be from The Crown. Crown. Uh, I know Matt Smith played. It's not really a monarch though. Uh, what about um? What's his name? Didn't uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyers play one of the British monarchs in something recently? Um, I don't know I, that he played. I don't, Steve, know. I don't know who played Steve McQueen. I really doubt that Matt Smith played Steve McQueen. That seems completely incongruous. Okay, who are the Tarantino actors? Like, well, no, I I can't even think of very many Tarantino stable people. Like, do you I know any? Of, I mean, who were in that? I didn't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, um, I really I haven't seen that many of his movies. I've seen like probably four. It's not Brad Pitt. It's not Leonardo no. DiCaprio. It's not. Um... I know that uh, I know that Luke Perry's final role was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I don't think he played McQueen. He really could have, couldn't he? I don't know. Do you think that his dad could have been a physician to the British royal family? <laughs> No idea. He died recently. If it was, I'm he sure Susanna read the obit and we're in trouble. But um. like, like he died. He died young. He was probably like 45. 40. Yeah. Um, I, I think that my guess is Jonathan Rhys Meyers, just because I know that he did something royal recently that he got Emmy nominated for. And if it's not for the Crown, I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be for a TV movie and that would open up a lot of other things, but I don't think anyone got nominated for playing a monarch in, in Downton Abbey. I know they had monarchs in the movie or I saw the preview for it, but that's the only name I have. If you're confident he was nominated for playing a monarch, I I'm think not, that's the I, best. I, I am confident that he played something royal and that it was acclaimed. That, I, you know. I, th- I think that's good enough. Okay, Jonathan Reese Myers. Yep. Locking in Jonathan Reese Myers? Yep. All right, pass over to Susanna. What was, um? can you read the question again? What was the relation of this guy, the the, the physician great, was his grandfather? Great-grandfather. Okay. I have a guess. Let me just think about it. Uh, father was in 1960. Grandfather, let's say 1940. His great-grandfather was... Uh, Okay, I am kicking myself for not seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's right on our list. My guess is you couldn't really get somebody much much older than this. My guess is Jared Harris. Jared Harris? Yeah. Uh, all right. So I think, yeah, both, both of those are kind of a 
Irish descent, which doesn't rule them out because I did say it was a position which could have been. But um, in this case, yeah, so Jonathan Reese Myers, I think, was, I think, maybe nominated. Definitely had a notable performance as Henry VIII. This is actually another actor who played Henry VIII, in his case, in Wolf Hall. Oh, uh, 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 what's his face? Um, Damien Lewis. Damien Lewis, yes. Uh, well, yeah, right. it, yeah, the age, the age should have been, yeah. So we end that round now. I believe the scores I have in my spreadsheet are Victoria 18.1, Guy 18.1, Susanna 9.1. So the tiebreakers aren't really breaking that tie, but we just have one round left. And this is the super hard round. These will be the hardest questions. They'll be worth six points as a steal, five points as a specialist, three points as a bonus. And we will start with Guy and Susanna trying to steal from Victoria. Question. In the textbook, Principles of Biomedical Ethics, Tom Beauchamp and James Childress lay out four core moral principles of medical ethics sometimes termed the Georgetown Mantra. Of those four, which one has nothing to do with avoiding a Disney villainess, but is basically synonymous with the Latin dictum primum non nocere, and give the exact one-word, sometimes hyphenated term as it's usually stated? Um, well, primum non nocere, whatever it was, that's first do no harm, right? Sounds like it. Um, and it says not avoiding... Um, nothing to do Nothing to do with a avoiding a Disney villainess. So I would say maybe Cruella is the Disney uh, villainess we're thinking of. So are we looking for an English translation of that Latin term? Like I don't know. I said that the word is basically synonymous with. I didn't say it was a translation. Okay, uh, so, so a word that is synonymous with not doing any harm. Cruella... Um, no Cruella. No, no Cruella. No Anti-Cruella. Um, <laughs> Anti-griddle. Non-Cruella. Uh, <laughs> no gritty. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, what other Disney villain? Uh, M- M- Maleficent means. Oh, yeah. Maleficent means bad something, right? Yeah. Uh, no, Non-Maleficent. Bear, Medusa. You wouldn't think of that as a Disney villain first and foremost, though. Um, I mean, doesn't Maleficent mean harm doer or something to that Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Does, what, yeah maybe non- does... Non-Maleficent is a non-maleficent sounds like it could be yeah it could but, um, be both hyphenated or non-hyphenated and it, it could be very close to being confused with uh disney heroin yeah it could be it but, sounds and, like and just, just like to that clarify did you have any kind of translate did you does corella mean anything no <laughs> okay all right all right yeah i um, think i like i like where you're going with that so you uh i, I think want... not not so non-maleficent is that what you're looking at? Anti, anti-maleficent? I think non oh. sounds good. Uh-oh. We could get hosed on a technicality if it's non or anti and we give the wrong one. Um, Non-maleficent. Okay. I like that. Sound good? Sure. Non-maleficent. Right. Logging in non-maleficent. All right. Victoria? I was so excited to hear Beecham and Faden, and, and they're right. It is non-maleficent, or sometimes uh, sometimes written as beneficent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are actually two, two separate principles, uh, beneficence and non-maleficence. Although, yeah, I think they would mean pretty much the same thing. But yeah, when I did my human subject certification, I had to demonstrate that I understood both of them, which was very easy. Okay, so Guy moves into the lead now, and the next question goes to Victoria and Susanna trying to steal from Guy. So Venice is part of an urban agglomeration referred to as patreve, patreve, which is a clipped compound word formed by shortening and concatenating the first syllable of its three major cities. I'll just give you the spelling, P-A-T-R-E-V-E. So one of those three cities is, of course, Venice. What are the other two? So Padua came up, or, or was it Padua or Pavia that came up when, when Guy Pavia. was talking about Venice earlier? So it's Pavia. 
It's, I bet the other one is Treviso. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. I mean, the other possibility is Trento, but I, I think that's um, kind of northeast. I think it's Treviso. Sure, let's go with that. What are you locking in? Javier and Treviso, yeah. Yeah. Javier and Treviso? Mm-hmm. Okay, Guy? I think Treviso is right, but the P is definitely Padua, where, oh. the arena, where the arena chapel is located, where the great university is, where Galileo taught. Uh, the, the first botanical garden in Europe is there. So it's definitely Padua. I think it's Treviso. Trentino is a little bit farther to the northwest. You're getting up into the Alps. I have not been to Treviso. I don't know as much about it. I think it's a fairly big place. So I know Padua is right. So I'm going to go Padua, P-A-D-U-A, and Treviso. I'm going to lock it right. Okay, yeah. So Guy has gone from being tied with Victoria to opening up an 11-point lead. Ooh, that- nice. <laughs> All right. And now Guy and Victoria trying to steal from Susanna. Which British monarch fathered at least 10 illegitimate children with the actress Dorothea Jordan? All of them were given the surname Fitzclarence because at the time he had yet to ascend to the throne and thus his senior title was Duke of Clarence. So the obvious, well, the the, the obvious would be Charles II, but I don't know if that's... I kind of don't think, I thought that this was, um, I thought that this was either Edward IV or William IV, and I actually think it's William IV. Um, Yogesh, can can you repeat the name of the actress? Dorothea Jordan. Dorothea Jordan, okay. Um, This is kind of ringing a bell for William IV. I am not 100%, and I don't have specific things to base that on other than I have a very strong, you know, sense that this is a thing that I've learned that's right. If you have trivia, Spidey, <laughs> then, then go with it. The only reason I said Charles II is because he betted a lot of actresses and he had a lot of kids. He did have, have um, illegitimate children, but like the the Fitz. Yeah, Fitz Clarence. I um, mean, yeah, and, okay. and th- so you do have the whole like George Duke of Clarence thing from which of those Shakespeare plays. Oh, um, I don't think it's a George though. I I think it's I'm gonna say William Four. Stick with trivia. Stick with trivia. <laughs> yeah. All right, locking in William the Fourth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and as I said, you know, luck will play into the outcome just as much as knowledge because even though Victoria's knowledge is very impressive, it won't close the gap with Guy. You won't get it. <laughs> But yes, William the Fourth is correct. All right, marching along now to Guy and Susanna trying to steal from Victoria. So a rash caused by parvovirus B19 is often referred to as X disease, where X is what adjective derived from a list of exanthema compiled by Leon Chenis in 1905. Um, a rash caused by a parvovirus. Parvo. Parvovirus. Mm. Um, um, I should know this. I can't remember. Of, you, can you a, a list of what a list of exanthema i'll just tell you that just means rashes or, or you know kind of manifestations of rashes uh compiled by leon chenise in 1905 um well it's not hansen's disease because that's leprosy yeah i'm uh i'm sorry i'm not thinking of anything but my kid is calling me all right just i'm just gonna can you hear what while i'm speaking while you're doing yep, that yep. Or, okay i mean herpes causes sores not rashes shingles is a rash i don't know if there's more than one kind of shingles rash i mean what are like 
trivia worthy <laughs> what are trivia worthy rashes all rashes are trivia worthy um okay uh you're itchy you got a rash it could be uh it could, it, i mean there are lots of like different kinds of herpes viruses that could yeah. give you a rash it could be some kind of std it could be uh but you what do you call it parvovirus like blank, blank okay disease? i think parvoviruses are very large viruses i think what does parvo mean parvo Delicious. what is that yeah could be uh, Hmm, parvovirus. Yeah. Hmm. So it's is it some someone's or something's disease? Like what are we? Uh, that's not Legionnaires, is it? 1905. Yeah. That would have been. Wouldn't that have been in the American Legion in 1976 in Philadelphia? It's true. Um, that was way way later, right? Yes. Uh. Um. It could be. I mean, d- d- does leprosy give you a rash? I think leprosy just like eats your skin up. But it wasn't Hansen. It was the French guy. Um, Right. And, and the, the name of the French guy. Yogesh, what's the name of the French guy? Assuming he's French, we don't know that. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about ethnicity, and I'm actually not sure of pronunciation either, but I'll go with Leon Chenise. C-H-E-I-N-I-S-S-E. Leon Chenise. So, I mean, there, you know, there's herpes, there's shingles, there's chicken pox gives you a rash. Isn't chicken um, pox like uh Yeah, that's a different thing. But that, that's, yeah. yeah, that's variola or something, right? Varicella, um, I think. Um, herpes is the name of the virus, though. If it's caused by a parvovirus, it's not herpes is right. a name of our um man. And these are really, really hard questions. So this is not necessarily going to be um it, it could be Hansen's disease, you know, like it could be like uh what else? Okay, what else gives you a rash? That's a weird question to ask somebody on a podcast. What what else? Um, <laughs> I mean, measles. Um, measles does i think it yeah. gets you flushed like that it um could it be syphilis or gonorrhea syphilis is a virus and like syphilis is one of those things in trivia there is so much about syphilis like mm-hmm. you could have a whole mini league on syphilis you know <laughs> like in literally if, if, if one wanted to do that i don't know that syphilis is a symptom if a rash is a symptom of syphilis or of gonorrhea for that matter or any of the other stds but like i just wonder if this is an std um or chlamydia i don't i honestly it's nothing is jumping out at me like blankety blanks disease and i just i just don't know it's not necessarily blankety blanks disease so so yogesh we're, we're, we're you're asking us for x what think of it as just like blank disease and just what goes in the blank okay so it's not syphilis it's not syphilis disease it's not chlamydia disease gonorrhea disease hansen's is possible you don't refer to it as syphilis disease <laughs> I, just syphilis i mean it's it's sort of you know it's it's like pele you know it's, it's what you say blunt. when you get someone on the phone to be uh to, to go to their doctor and get checked yeah. uh, you might mm-hmm. have syphilis disease no it's just syphilis um the syphilises so hansen's disease so kissing there, there's all those like you know kissing disease um, there's like there, the honeymoon well, disease that's a, like a uti or not that's not you know I mean, what has a, a rash we haven't talked about yet and this could be a, we this could be a, dec- a decluing thing lyme disease gives you a rash oh that's caused that by sense. a virus that's yeah. carried by or rocky mountain spotted fever disease that doesn't make any sense lyme disease makes sense because it was named for old Lyme, Connecticut. Right. But somebody had to discover it. And that there's like a, a it, it looks like a target, right? Somebody just got Lyme disease. Didn't Justin Bieber just get Lyme disease? Or he's had it? Lots of people think they get Lyme disease. No, but but it's it's currently in the news because Justin Bieber announced he has Lyme disease, right? 
Well, I say let's I go like Lyme. for it because I I don't have any other guess. I like Lyme disease. Sure. All right. Why not? I don't I don't actually like yeah. We're gonna go we're gonna go with Lyme disease, I think. Lyme disease. Alright, that's because gonna be the pull quote from the episode. I like Lyme disease. <laughs> All right, I'll pass it over to Victoria. Okay, so this is a group of diseases that are known as the contagious rashes of childhood. So you've oh, got, yeah. So you got measles, you got, I think, rubella, you got chicken pox, you've got roseola, and then you've got one more, and it basically just causes... Hand-foot-mouth disease. Uh, no, not hand-foot-mouth. <laughs> so unless you're pregnant, it doesn't really cause much of anything except for a rash that looks like somebody slapped you on the cheek. And it was basically named because it was different from those other four diseases it is called fifth disease mm. oh. yeah named derived from a list right what do you call things on a list the first thing the second thing but of course all of those others were eventually given you know fancier names except for the fifth one which is just fifth it's, disease that is fantastic in my defense <laughs> i spent most of my pregnancy just trying not to throw up so god me too oh yeah were you a? did you have gallbladder stuff no, I had hyperemesis the whole time. Yeah, so um, I think both of us probably learned that what uh, projectile really means. Oh, holy crap, so, yeah. Anyway, to the next All one! Right. The only podcast where you will hear... <laughs> Inquisitors <laughs> uh, discuss the experience of being pregnant. Uh, multiple. Yeah, there's <laughs> actually more than one woman. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Speaking of more than one woman, Victoria and Susanna now trying to steal from Guy. The Spire wine bottle, S P E Y E R, discovered in an ancient Roman tomb in present-day Germany, currently housed in the Historical Museum of the Palatinate in Spire, Germany, is generally considered the world's oldest unopened bottle of wine. So, uh, you know how they say like vintage you know 18 whatever and so on but if you if you were to open if the sommelier were to bring you this uh they would say vintage what to which century has it been dated by experts and please specify ad or bc and you specifically said that it is found in an ancient roman tomb correct that is what i said yes okay so that's going to limit it from i forget what what date is the traditional founding room, but it's around 700 BC to 476 AD. Um, I know that they were making like Falernian wine on the shore and uh, whatever the one is, I think it is Falernian on the, on the shores of Mount Vesuvius through the Republican period. I think it's more likely to date from the Roman like Republic than to be from the, like the monarchy era. So I would basically say somewhere from first century bc on up to fifth century ad are the possibilities um germany i know that caesar lost the battle against arminius at Teutoburg forest in nine eight nine bc 980 and that's stopped Rome from expanding into present-day Germany for quite a while. So I would guess it's not BC. I would guess it's AD. Hmm. Um... Beyond that, I think we're mostly guessing. I think they had best control of the empire around the like the good emperors, so that would be second century AD. I don't really have much beyond that. Yeah, I, I, well, I, you've got I more than I do, so. I would put it second to fifth. Uh, Susanna, pick a number between two and five. Uh, three. <laughs> uh, we're going with the third century AD. Right, so third century, that's the 200s, right? Yes. Okay, uh, I, that was pretty amazing watching you break that down. Um, but I'll just keep quiet and pass it over to Guy. <laughs> 
Okay, so we don't know if that's right or not. Right, but for, for game theory purposes, right, you want to assume it's wrong. Okay, for game theory purposes, I want to assume it's wrong. The only reasoning that I had is that there was a lot of economic and political activity after the split by Diocletian that was up in Trier. That was one of the four capitals of the sort of bifurcated Roman Empire. And a lot of activity was happening in that part of Germany in the early to mid 300s. And I'm just wondering if the additional political activity in that part of the Roman Empire might have spurred more wealthy wine drinking patriciany people. So I'm going to say the fourth century AD. All right. Fourth century to the 300s. Yeah. All right. Excellent knowledge displayed by both of you. And it, it really, you know, could have gone to either one, but this one goes to Guy. Oh, very oh, nice. All right. All right. Now, Guy and Victoria to steal from Susanna. Poor Bryce Dallas Howard. Not only does she never get that 4.5 rating, but she had to spend all of Jurassic World trying to outrun dinosaurs in a pair of nude three and a half inch heels from which designer brand? I knew that this was going to come up. This I can't remember where this was. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Designer. <laughs> how do you running away from dinosaurs in a designer brand of shoes? So we're not going to. Hmm. I'm trying to remember because there was like maybe two or three years ago. Like, it seemed like a lot of people were wearing nude heels. And I, I feel confident it's not going to be Louboutins because they've already come up. Um, so other... Manolo? Manolo. Manolo Blonix is a possibility. Jimmy Choo is a possibility. Um... Kate Spade. Um, could this I, have been like a? Could this have been a paid product placement in Jurassic World by one of those companies? Is, it, is there a company that would be more likely to do that than another? I would think somebody like a somebody who's big on like broader name recognition, like a Gucci. Um, I don't have a lot to go on here. Kate Spade's known more for handbags, right? Uh, she, uh, yeah, it's true. She makes uh, pretty great shoes, or made. Yeah. Uh, so maybe knock her off the list. I mean, um, it, it could be. I don't want to, you know. I mean, I'm not a shoe. I kind of <laughs> feel like answer. I kind of feel like Manolo Blahniks are kind of known for being uncomfortable. Um, which kind of makes me lean that way as it being particularly ridiculous. But I think something like Gucci is a pretty safe bet. And and we're going for like just general brand not type so if we just say manolo then we would get credit for that i think i would think so so what are you locking so, in what do you think do, do, i mean gucci is safer because when, when i think of like i'm like a neophyte here with fashion yeah when i think of when i think of manolo i think of shoes when right, I think right, of, right, right, right when i think of gucci i think they of lots everything. of things i mean they make everything yeah but they are known for their shoes and they are like one of the big luxury brands which makes me think that maybe they would have been more inclined to splash out money in this particular circumstance but something about, something about running in manolos that I, let's go with that then I, I mean i, I like I the reasoning to, I, think I hate people, to kind of lead us astray but you know we're we're guessing here so i don't really feel like there's much astray about it i'll let you decide i don't want to let's go let's go with manolo's manolo blonic all right so you're locking in manolo or manolo blonic yeah Susanna? I don't believe it's quite as high end. I know that this came up fairly recently, but I can't remember what it was. I want to say it's, I want to say it's Cole Haan. I don't think it was as high end as that. I wanted to say that whenever this came up before, it was either Cole Haan or Donald Pointer. I think it, I think it's Cole Haan. Well, they'd All at right, least so. be a little bit more comfortable. They have that whole airbear thing going, don't they? Right. Yeah. So very, very I, I, practical I, I, choice, Bryce Dallas Howard. <laughs> 
I think it's the three and a half inch part that was the uh, impractical part. <laughs> well, the Cole Haan's actually, Cole Haan is, is much better. Well, I could do all sorts of things about the physics of high heels, but yes. All Cole right. Haan's are actually much more much more comfortable than others because of the way they're built, not just because right. of the, yeah, where the heel sits. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton I, uh, I could learn, but for the purposes of this podcast, we'll just... <laughs> Reveal. It's a brand that's owned now by Calaris, which formerly the Brown Shoe Company. Oh, is it Nine uh, West then? Is it what you said? Is it Nine West? No, it's Sam Edelman. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sam Edelman, formerly of Sam and Libby. I loved those when I was a kid. Yeah. All right. So now we're on the very last cycle of the game. Each of you is getting one remaining question in your specialist subject and two remaining chances to steal from your opponents. So here's first goes to Guy and Susanna trying to steal from Victoria. The entertainment education approach to using television programs to spread sociocultural messages about topics like gender equity and family planning was pioneered by Miguel Sabido in the Spanish-speaking world and backed by U.S.-based organizations such as Population Communications International and Population Media Center. Now, a major consultant for these programs and organizations is which Canadian-born research psychologist credited with developing social learning theory? A 2002 assessment published in Review of General Psychology ranked him the fourth most eminent psychologist of the 20th century behind only Skinner, Piaget, and Freud. Oh, and also he was my undergraduate advisor. Okay, so we're, we're looking for a Canadian psychologist who taught at Illinois. Can you name a Canadian? Wisconsin's closer to Canada than Kentucky. Yeah, you, I mean, I was, a... yeah, the answer is no. I cannot, and I probably cannot answer this question. So, you know, it's not Marshall McLuhan. It's not Irving Goffman. It's not, you know, can't we just well, say well, Yogesh's well, advisor? Here, here's the thing, though. <laughs> well, I am 99% sure that Marshall McLuhan was not Yogesh's advisor, so I don't think yeah, it's right. But, but we are talking too. about we're talking about media, so yeah. I was um, thinking great like, like that. <laughs> when I was just thinking of these things that that popped into my head before he said psychologist, and you know, wasn't yeah. wasn't he Canadian? He probably even wasn't Canadian. He was. Just, he, was. Oh, he was. I think well, he there, was. I'm not entirely off. Um, so, yeah, the, just Canadian comedy group Festivals has a great song called "The Ballad of Marshall McLuhan." Yeah. Already. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Watson, Skinner. No. Like, so it's not Skinner. It's not. This is really frustrating. Like, I feel like I should be able to name a Canadian psychologist. That's a plausible option, and I can't, and that's frustrating me. Um, Oh, gosh. So it's not Piaget, Skinner. Um, yeah, but it has to be somebody who's relatively recent because Yogesh is not particularly old, relatively speaking. Con- well, point for that. <laughs> relatively contemporary psychologist. What are some major kind of what, what's happened recently in psychology? I mean, we could we could be here all day um, huh. using media to teach spokesperson. I don't know, Susanna. I'm whiffing on this, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm out. Do you want a Lucky Johnson this? <laughs> Shouldn't we be doing like Lucky McDonald or Lucky uh, McDonald? Oh yeah, yeah. Or Lucky uh, Lucky uh, Corbeau Trudeau, or something. Chrétien, Lucky Chrétien or something. Let's Lucky. Well, let's Lucky McDonald this. It's McDonald. Okay. Lucky and McDonald. All right, Victoria. Okay. I I feel confident that I will know who this is because. I, before my current job, I spent about 10 years working at a medical school, mostly on education research. So I think the chances that I have read something by this person are are really pretty high. I thought about... Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, I, I thought about Roy Baumeister as possibilities, 
and I think I'm going to go with oh, sorry. Cheeks, go yeah, Cheeks at me eyes. So the guy who did Flow. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Baumeister. Yeah, I only very recently learned how to pronounce Cheeks at me eye. Good job mastering that. In the beginning of the book Flow, he actually has like a little phonetic guide. So that's how I learned it. <laughs> I took yeah. Hungarian and also his, I think it's his son. His son used to teach at UW-Madison. So yeah, I, uh, I remember looking back through my notes after one lecture and seeing that I'd written the words rhymed with science and it took me and then I was like oh right I wrote down how to pronounce Robert Zions <laughs> I definitely would have said Zajonk um, but Robert Zions actually was married to Hazel Marcus who was my de facto advisor when I was at Stanford not my advisor of record though there's actually well there's a story there but there was a, a non-trivial possibility that Roy Baumeister would have been my doctoral advisor had life worked what? out slightly so it, that, that's got to be worth half credit right <laughs> <laughs> but my undergraduate advisor of record. His big paper published in 1961, uh, often called the Bobo Doll Experiment. Oh. Bandura. And it was Albert Bandura. Cool. All right. I've, I've heard of him and I know about the Bobo dolls. I did not know he was Canadian. So Yeah. So my other mentor I mentioned earlier, Phil Teplock, also Canadian. So they've, they've played a big role in my education. All right. So Victoria and Susanna now trying to steal one last chance to steal from Guy. So a recent YouTube video posted by the Millennial Falcon herself, Jenny Nicholson, titled, I read the terrible episode nine pitch where Ray is a robot, hilariously deconstructs a proposed treatment for a Star Wars film posted on the website of which writer. This man actually authored the first ever piece of published Star Wars media, the 1976 novelization of what's now called Episode 4 A New Hope, as well as its awesomely titled sequel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. He's also novelized dozens of other films, including multiple installments of the Star Trek, Transformers, and Alien franchises. Uh-huh. Um, I'm throwing this out here. Did Werner Vinge die? I think Werner Vinge did, but he, I think he was, I know Joan Vinge did a lot of novelizations, but, um, I don't know. Yeah, this could not be farther from my wheelhouse. Yeah, I, 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 I literally have nothing here. If you want to go with Vinge, that's totally fine with me. I, yeah, no real. Oh, uh, you know who else did it was, for some reason I was coming up, was William Kotzwinkel. Um, I mean, the I... novelization for E.T., I do slightly favor that because it is an awesome name and, and very fun to say. Let's just um, do that because it is fun. But, uh, you know, the other one maybe sounds a little bit more plausible. I don't know. I'm making that up completely. I've heard the name Cotswinkle in the context of E.T., but I've never heard it anywhere else is, is the reason I say that. Okay. Whereas I know that Werner Vinge was prolific. Um, I know that he won at least one Hugo Award. Well, he's an actual science. I mean, yeah, not that, exactly. not that real, quote, real writer. And Kotzwinkel wrote The Bear Man Over the Mountain, which was, I believe, uh, something which was an original piece that everybody said was funny. So um, I read like approximately two science fiction books a year. And most of what I know about that, I know from osmosis from living with my husband. So uh, I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't know. Vinge, whatever. All right. You're locking in Vinge? Sure. All right. Bye. So as I understand it and remember it, I believe that Alan Dean Foster, not novelized what was not then called A New Hope, but was then called just Star Wars. But I think it was Alan Dean Foster. And I remember him doing a bunch of video games for Tellurium in the early to mid 80s that were basically these uh, 
you know, floppy disk games you would play on an Apple IIe or an Apple IIc. Um, I don't know that he, I think he did um, Shadowkeep, which was a really great old Tellurium game that you can't find anymore unless it's on an emulator. And, and I'm pretty sure when I heard that Alan Dean Foster had done the Star Wars novelizations, I kind of connected it to those games. And that's why the name is stuck with me. So there were a lot of different people doing novelizations of Star Wars, but I think the one you want is Alan Dean Foster. I'm going to go with that. All right. So looking at his list of credits, I saw a bunch of, of Hollywood movies, pretty much all speculative fiction, SF fantasy. And then for some reason, the 1985 Clint Eastwood Western Pale Rider, he also novelized. So another Clint Eastwood reference in there, but it is Alan Dean Foster. Good job. Congratulations. All right. And so that, I think, pretty much puts the game out of reach. But we're all playing for pride as well. <laughs> I've been riding your coattails all the past few hours. So, you know, y'all have yeah. carried me there. So. so, yeah, regardless of the outcome, this has been an amazing showcase of knowledge for all three of you. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. <laughs> No, seriously. Right. Yeah, I've learned things. I've learned about Grant, um, I don't remember what his last name is. Akats? Akats, yeah. Akats, okay, yes, I've learned about him. Okay, so last question now, Guy and Victoria trying to steal from Susanna. Stand-up comedian Isabel Hagen's pale blonde demeanor and privileged Manhattan upbringing have resulted in various roast battle opponents dubbing her things like Vampire Weekday, Margot Tends the Bomb, and Buffy if Buffy Lost to a Vampire. She's also an excellent singer and a Juilliard-educated musician, leading fellow roaster Eli Sayers to note that she is classically trained, which he then defined as when all of your classical music teachers were on a train on you. Uh, Dang! In, <laughs> uh, I thought this was a family podcast. <laughs> I did look up the definition of that term on Urban Dictionary to, to maintain that it was at least um, not family friendly, but oh, at it least is not like, family friendly. Yeah, um, not not as bad as it could have been. Oh no, that. it's as bad as it could have been. I don't know what that is, and I'm just going to live in that world. Thanks. <laughs> I thought it might have been something even more offensive than that, but it is not. So anyway, but yeah, no, probably um, if your kids listen to this. <laughs> Keep them off of the dictionary. There we go. All right. So, okay. So in reality, in addition to her many other talents, Isabel Hagen specializes in playing what instrument that has major solos in, among other pieces, Richard Strauss's Don Quixote, Hector Berlioz's Herald in Italy, and appropriately, the Isabel section of Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations. So, um, Herald in Italy, I believe, I know that it was written as a showcase for an instrumentalist who was very unhappy with it when he received it. And... Between that and Enigma Variations, I really think this is French horn, but I'm not terribly confident. I do think that it is uh, woodwind brass, not strings, not certain. It probably also is going to be something that is a little bit more rare as a solo instrument. So I would be surprised if it is something like flute or clarinet or violin. If it is strings, it's going to be like viola. Or is it viola? 
Hmm. I would focus on the Herald in Italy clue because that yeah. seems to be the most helpful thing. I mean, can you disabuse me of trombone? Because that's, that's just, when I heard those composers, I kind of, for some reason, that's right where trombone became a thing. It is a very rare solo instrument in orchestral music, which I think would fit the clue. I'm just trying to remember who commissioned Harold in Italy and what his deal was. I don't know. Just from what from from watching you, like you seem to have the spidey sense going off for French horn. So the other unless... thing, that's, the other thing that's kind of pinging is bassoon. Oh, um, which is another weird orchestral yeah. instrument. It's deeper, like trombone, like you were thinking. I know <laughs> I've heard the Enigma variations. It's not a piece I know well, but um, I would say bassoon is French such horn a weird instrument. Yeah, let's just assume it's not going to be violin or flute yeah, or trumpet I, or viola I, or cello. It, it's going to be something weird. It is, um, it is uncommon, that I know. It's not um, something truly uncommon. No, right? it's not it's like not, okay. it's not like a heckle bone or something. Or, yeah. It, no, yeah. It's a standard orchestral instrument that doesn't get a lot of solos. Um... I like bassoon French. I like bassoon better than French horn, but French horn was the first thing that popped into your head. Yeah. And that's, always, that's always something I, there's always a reason for that that is below the level of consciousness that I don't necessarily want to discount. So I don't know. I don't know. I If I had to pick one right now, I'd pick bassoon. Go with it. Bassoon. All right. Locking in bassoon. Yeah. I was thinking doing the research kind of, this podcast is kind of like my own Enigma variations. I write, <laughs> write things based on people I know but it's still hard to figure out what they're about. So I will I will keep quiet about that for suspense reasons and pass it over to Susanna. Um, huh. I'll just go out on a limb and say oboe. Oh. Just for fun. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot of things I could have kind of thrown in to make it easier, kind of narrowing things down, but um, I wanted to keep, yeah, all of the, the woodwinds and the strings and, you know, anything else in the orchestra in play. So I didn't narrow it down that much, but if it may help. So at one point, Eli Sayers attempted to roast her by saying that by playing her instrument, at least she's good at one kind of stand-up, but that Whoa. actually, that joke did not actually work though, because this instrument is typically not actually played standing up, but he was confusing it with the cello or upright bass, which are much larger, but another comedian did manage to get in a, a lick saying that, well, Viola Davis was in the help, Isabel plays the viola, and was raised by the help. Dear me. <laughs> so it was, it was fun we talked about, but, uh... Oh, well. Just a viola. Yeah. There's a whole Wikipedia article just on viola jokes. And in fact, one of the links in it is to a viola joke generator. So the final scores now are Victoria 29.1, Guy 45.1, Susanna 15.1. If you'd like to make a final statement, pretty much anything you want to say, and I'll keep it in as long as it's not too long or too offensive. We start with the highest score. So start with Guy. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to you, Yogesh, for writing such great questions. They're Yay. always... They often kick my butt, but I'm always happy for having heard them. Uh, I learn new things, and I love the way that you make second and third level connections between genres seem so effortless and eloquent. And also, I wanted to, to just thank Victoria and Susanna. You both are just titans and amazing players. I am not worthy to be uh, in, oh, no. in your presence. I rode your coattails pretty well for a lot of those. I kind of sat back, let you guys do all the thinking, and said, yeah, you go with that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was not particularly hard. So um, I, I would just I just wanted to thank you guys for um for having fun today. Thank you for being had. 
Yes, yes, this was wonderful. Thank you. All right, Victoria? Um, let's see. Thank you for having me. This was very lovely to be here. And uh, I guess I will go ahead and put in a plug for, I guess, since I had kind of a public health theme going with my questions, I would like to put in a plug for my favorite nonprofit, which is Partners in Health, run by Living Saint and hopefully future Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, Dr. Paul Farmer. Basically, they build hospitals in desperately poor areas to provide high quality medical care for people without requirement to pay. And I'm a huge fan of them, been a supporter for a long time. And if you're looking for a really well-run nonprofit that does good work to throw some money at, I highly recommend them. And Susanna? I would just like to send a shout out to the family and friends of distinguished trivia person and former Jeopardy contestant, Linda Shaver Gleason, who is a musicologist and a viola player who had been fighting metastatic breast cancer for good five years and will be imminently assassinated by it in her words. And so please send all of your good vibes to her and her husband and their young son and all that as she transitions out. And I had to stop myself from making viola jokes to her because God knows she could probably play it quite well. So she is absolutely fierce and I can't believe she is still alive this long because we thought it was going to be like a good two months ago. But thank you, Linda, for everything that you've given to the trivia community and to classical music and I encourage everybody to read her blog, which it I think is wonderful. Is not another music history cliche. Blogspot.com. Is that it, Victoria? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I believe that's the address. And it's definitely the title. Yeah. 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 And it's really fun and accessible for a lot of people. So for those of you who want to up your classical music score, that might be a good place to go. Thank you. Thank you for that. This has been episode seven of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.